Hello and welcome to the Two Guys Four Balls podcast. Hello and welcome to another Two Guys Four Balls podcast. Uh, with me, as always, is Julius. This is Patrick on the mic. Uh, we're going to go over the week six in the NFL, starting off with everyone's favorite matchup, the Thursday night games. Amazon yes. owes us a refund. These games have been awful. Uh, at least we got a touchdown in this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, touchdown. <laughs> um, you know, I'm blowing the whistle on Thursday night games. They have been awful. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know what I would do differently. I don't know if I would just get rid of the Thursday night game. I feel like they don't give anyone an advantage. And I feel like it's just, I, it just hasn't been good football for a few years now. Not now, now, what's happened the last few weeks is worse than normal. I'm not saying that every Thursday night game is like this. Uh, there have been really bad teams on Thursday night, so it's kind of expected. But um, if you just look back over the last three or four years, there just hasn't been great football on Thursday nights. There's always kind of a lull on a Thursday. And if you think about it, Makes sense. They have like three days to to rest and one day of practice, and then you're like, go play a football game. Like it just doesn't make sense. Um, I don't think it's needed. I mean, the NFL just wants money. That's why they're doing it. But I'm not a huge fan of Thursday night games. Not a huge fan of London games. But you know, those are here to stay. It seems. And now we're going to Germany and and Mexico again and doing all types of stuff. Um. Anyway, going into the game, Justin Fields looked terrible. Carson Wentz looked even worse, and somehow the Commanders won this game. Um, the Chicago was in the red zone three times. Two times they were within the five. The other time they were on the 15, and they had zero touchdowns to show for it. Their one touchdown was an amazing catch by Dante Pettis, um, but the red zone offense and just everything that the bears were doing once they got into the red zone was just awful. Um, I don't want to put all the blame on Justin Fields because he has no receiving core and the offensive line is terrible, but there was one play and they showed this replay a bunch where David Montgomery leaks, leaks out into the flat wide open into the end zone touchdown and Fields doesn't even look over his way. So I don't know if it's reading through progressions. I don't know if it's, what needs to be taught to Justin Fields, or if he's just so used to being hit right after the snap that he just looks for his first progression and runs. Um, but it is just it, it. This was a really bad game offensively all the way around. Uh, I mean, I know Wentz, you know, toughed it out after breaking his finger, and now he's going to be out four to six weeks. So it's even impressive enough that he was throwing the football still and finished this game out. But this was just a struggle of two offensively challenged teams. Um, I'm not going to give the credit to the defenses that much, but it, it was this was a struggle to watch, Julius. Uh, I, I, yeah, I had trouble staying awake for this one. If I'm if I'm being honest, I think the audience will pretty much uh, be completely in agreement with you about Thursday night football in general. Uh, it just feels like <laughs> it almost feels like there's like a ration of touchdowns going on. Like, wait, wait, wait. You get one per team, one touchdown per team, if if that, if that. You, you don't have to take that, but we got to cap you out at one. So 
Uh, the Commanders give you a touchdown in this game, a touchdown. The Bears give you a touchdown in this game, a touchdown. And, uh, you know, I, I think part of the problem as well is not just the fact that, you know, these are Cubans who are going to have a tough time recovering from a professional football game uh, just in a few days to go out there and do it again. But uh, part of it, too, is this whole rule. And I, I don't know why the owners or whoever is doing this and made this a thing, but the, the rule that says everybody's got to be on a primetime game. I mean, let's be honest. If both these teams were coming off of a bye, this is what a Commanders versus, versus Bears game would still look like. And so we have two awful offenses going into it, into the game. We know this, and you decide. like like This isn't an Indianapolis-Denver situation where both teams are kind of disappointing up until this point in the season. You knew the Commanders and Bears were going to be two of the worst teams, two of the <laughs> worst worst teams to watch on offense. So uh, some of it is just game selection. So that that's part of it for me as well. Uh, in this day and age, to see two quarterbacks not be able to combine for 300 yards passing is, is shocking to see. Uh, and they even understood that on the Bears side, again, I've said all year long, there's just no weapons uh, to work with on offense. Uh, in the passing game anyway, it's, it's just shocking to see that much of a struggle when every rule favors the offense and in particularly passing offense to have a situation where neither team can move the football through the air is, is sad. Uh, you, you highlighted the Dante Pettis play. That, that was one highlight, and that was the highlight. Uh, Curtis Samuel had a terrible drop in this game. That certainly didn't help uh, the numbers in this game. Uh, well, what should have been another touchdown, but again, it felt like, you know, the commanders had their limit of one touchdown, so I guess Samuel had to drop it. Uh, for the Bears, it, it's time to start getting a little bit concerned already about Vilas Jones as a punt return. Uh, this is a guy who, in his debut a couple weeks ago, muffed a punt that caused the Bears an opportunity to get back into a game, uh, basically threw away their last chance at a possession to, to go and steal that game. And then in this game, the commanders could not put together a drive at all. And it was a Jones muff punt inside the tent that set up their lone touchdown. So these are two games that the Bears had a shot at winning. You can't say the favorites or anything, but had a shot at winning. And Jones has cost them both of them by an inability to catch punts. If you're a punt returner, catching punts is kind of important. Uh, shout out to Brian Robinson Jr. Of course, you know, everybody knows that story, but he gets his first touchdown in this game. Nice sight to see. It seems like the backfield already belongs to him as uh, Antonio Gibson has become something Think of another scapegoat for Ron Rivera. So I expect to see Robinson continue to get the majority of the carries moving forward by a wide margin. Uh, the last thing I'll say about this game, you talked about the Carson Wentz injury. Uh, just because of uh, the state of affairs with how protected quarterbacks are, I would not be surprised. Now, it has to happen to somebody more important, and I'm just being real, somebody more important than Dak Prescott or Carson Wentz. But if we see a Tom Brady, or a Justin Herbert, you know, a Joe Burrow, certainly a Josh Allen, somebody who the league values, a Patrick Mahomes. If they get their fingers broken or part of their hand damaged by one of these guys trying to knock the ball out of their hands coming forward, I, I think you're going to see a rule change. And it's, it's sad to see, but I uh, sad to say, but that's the way I feel about it. I feel like every time a bunch of quarterbacks start getting hurt, they start looking at it, but when one marquee quarterback gets hurt, that's when the rule change happens. So uh, as stupid as it sounds, I, I think you could see at some point uh, a penalty on guys who approach uh, quarterbacks with their hands up and cause that collision 
uh, with the hands that's causing damage to the quarterback's fingers. That's about as much as I got for this game. All right, next game we're going to get into uh, one of the kind of three big upsets we saw this weekend, the Atlanta Falcons taking out the San Francisco 49ers 28-14. to uh, Let me just start off with this. Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead, Javon Kinlaw, Jimmy Ward, Emmanuel Mosley. And you can count Jason Verrett, too, even though he's always hurt. All these guys missed this game. All key pieces on the 49ers defense. Then Charvarius Ward gets hurt in this game. Apparently, Talano Hufanga got hurt in this game with a, with a head injury. It's unfortunate for the 49ers because on paper, those are all the defensive players, by the way, who either missed the game or got knocked out of the game. And it's unfortunate because when you look at this matchup on paper, you had the 49ers coming into this game with the number one run defense in the league. And they're going against a an offense that has been pretty one-dimensional and has gotten more and more one-dimensional by the week. Uh, as far as the Atlanta Falcons, a team that just runs and runs and runs. And so you would think on paper, number one defense against an offense that can only move the ball on the ground. The, the Falcons are number two in the league as far as run play percentage behind only the Bears who just didn't invest anything in receivers. And yet because of these injuries, the Falcons were able to generate just enough ground game. I mean, it wasn't anything spectacular, but just enough ground game to go and take this game away from the 49ers. On the other side, Kyle Shanahan abandoned the run way too early, which probably seems like some degree of slight poetic justice to Falcons fans to see Kyle Shanahan come into Atlanta and abandon the run too early in a game that kind of cost them. I'm sure Falcons fans love to see that, but I, I just wasn't sure why that was the case in this game. This game was 21-14 at halftime. Yes, the 49ers fell behind early, but after a couple of Brandon Ayuk touchdowns, they were right back in the game in the first half. So you're down seven at halftime. It's not like you're getting blown out and you got to go get chunk plays for the last three quarters of the game. So, you know, even with a Jeff Wilson fumble, somebody's got to explain to me how Jeff Wilson, Tevin Coleman, and Debo Samuel all combined for 13 total carries in this game. The 49ers. You have Jimmy G. And oh, oh by, by the way, all the, remember all the talk, and I said this before, I'll say it again. Remember when... You know, Trey Lance wasn't ready, and this offense had so much potential. He, all you had to do was plug Jimmy G in there, and this offense was going to take off. Remember when everybody forgot who Jimmy Garoppolo was? Yeah, yeah. That's 14 points taste. If Trey Lance scored 14 points, we, we know what that would be. Against a, a defense that's playing better than expected. I got to keep saying that about the Falcons. But a defense that you should be able to drop more than 14 points on if you're that good of a quarterback and you've got that supporting cast around but, uh, yeah, the 49ers, they, they've got some work to do, and I, I don't know what they do about the defense. This is a well-built team. And, by the way, I didn't even mention the fact, you know, he's not on defense, but Trent Williams, their most important offensive player out of this game as well. So the 49ers, I guess at some point, are going to start to feel like, once again, it's just another snake-bitten, injury-riddled season, which is, I feel like, you know, I feel like it's been about four or five years in a row I've said that about the 49ers. This team would be so good if they could just stay healthy. It seems like every year that's what we're saying about this team. But uh, it's, it's not looking promising so far just based on the number of guys already injured for the 49ers. Um, as for the Falcons, 
They did just enough. They didn't ask Marcus Mariota to do too much. The little bit they did ask him to do, he did it efficiently. And that's all this team seems to want moving forward. They actually used Kyle Pitts in the red zone. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's an epiphany there. Maybe there's something going on. Or maybe they continue to throw the ball to everybody else too because Michael Pruitt scored a touchdown before Kyle Pitts did in this game. So I don't know. They should use Kyle Pitts more in the red zone, not just as a blocker, but we'll see. Uh, Jalen Hawkins had a big game in this game. He was the one who recovered the fumble in the end zone off the A.J. Terrell fumble off the Jeff Wilson fumble. So Jalen Hawkins gets a fumble recovery and a touchdown in this game, also gets an interception in this game. Jalen Hawkins playing that most important position in football, playmaking safety. When you get that going, it makes all kinds of difference in the game. So Jalen Hawkins is out there making plays. The entire 49ers defense is injured. That's the big reason why the Falcons won this game for me. Yeah, this game, um, very disappointing for San Francisco uh, to only score 14. Uh, Don't get me wrong, Atlanta's defense has been actually a top five defense this year, um, shockingly. Julius touches touches on it almost every podcast now, where he's like, the defense played better than expected. The defense played better than expected. If they didn't give up a terrible fourth quarter lead to the Saints, this team would be leading their division outright. Um, Yep. If, you know, Mariota didn't throw a terrible pick to, to Jalen Ramsey, going for his fourth receiver, this team could have potentially, and if it wasn't for an egregious roughing the pass call, but who knows what would have happened in that game. This team could actually be 5-1, and 4-2. and two, But anyway, they beat San Francisco. Um, San Francisco has so many injuries, like you said. I feel like we say this every year. So I'm blowing the whistle on their training staff. You can't have four years in a row – you know, it was it was the the year removed off their first Super Bowl appearance where their whole team got injured and they didn't make the playoffs. And they made the playoffs last year but had injuries. And now they have all nine of their starting 11 defenders are on IR or injured or not playing. So it's just, that's terrible. That's not good. You can't, you know, one or two years here and there, but you have like three or four consecutive years now where this is happening. Something has to change. Um... Yeah, Jimmy G threw for 296 yards, but they were meaningless 296 yards, honestly. Um, Caleb Huntley for the Falcons just runs hard. Like I'm not saying he's a good running back and he should be their starting running back, but it seems like it is. he never goes down off of the first hit. There were so many runs in this game where they handed him the ball, and you look like he was going to get stopped you know, for a one-yard gain, one-yard loss. He turned to a two or three yard gain just because he bounces around before getting tackled. And people might not think that's a big deal, but for a running team, for a run first team, second and seven, third and four, those are what you want. You don't want third and 10. You don't want second and 11. So even just one or two positive yards on first down makes a big difference for teams that are limited in the passing game. Uh, Mariota only threw 14 times. He was 13 for 13 at one point in time. Um, So, again, if you're controlling the clock and you have a lead on a team, um, if you're a running team, you can bleed that that clock dry and and win games. Um, You know, A.J. Terrell got hurt in this game, so that's going to be a big blow to Atlanta's defense, and we'll see how that uh, unit kind of reacts to their best player on that side of the ball going going down with injury so then so the next game is the new england patriots at the cleveland browns and i'm not gonna say it was an upset or anything but a surprising game being 38 to 15 um 
Nick Chubb got shut down in this game, and that is the Browns' offense. So Chubb getting shut down, you're probably beating the Browns. Um, disappointed Jacoby Brissett. I mean, I know Joyce and I talked about him last week, and we kind of know who he is at this point, and he probably shouldn't be starting in the NFL, but there were two or three plays in this game where he underthrew his receivers really poorly, and if he just gave them a one- or two-yard lead or even threw it on the money, not even leading them, those are probably long touchdowns in this game, and that could have been the difference between you know a 38-15 loss and maybe being competitive and in this game. Um, Shout-out to Julius. He said Ramon J. Stevenson was going to be the lead back now in New England, and he was shut down for most of the game, but he had two big runs that kind of put this game away uh, in the end. Um, and shout-out to Bailey Zappi. Um, to be the third stringer to start this season... Mac Jones goes down, Brian Hoyer goes down. You step in against the Packers and do enough to almost win that game, right? Which at the time seemed like a huge win, would have been a huge win for New England. Um, and then you win two games in a row, you know, as the starter and put up 300 yards passing. I don't think anyone saw that coming from, from Bailey Zappi. So um, shout out to him. I'm not going to be these overreactors saying there's a quarterback controversy in New England. Um, because you got to look at who they play. You got to look at kind of who you're prepared for. Um, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, a Dallas fan saying rush hour, let's zappy hour. Like, let's put them in. Like, it's just not, but this is good for them because they know Brian Hoyer is not going to be their backup forever. He's getting up there in age. So having a competent backup quarterback in this league is, is, very crucial. So the fact that Zappy came in as a rookie and looks like he understands the offense and is and 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 you know again their running game really wasn't taken off and Zappy's the one that was moving the ball for them through the first two and a half quarters of this game. So um, you know shout out to him Cleveland three losses or this is a disappointing loss. It is you know if if literally if Nick Chubb does not get going this team is nothing on offense right now. Um, Another game where Amari Cooper doesn't show up. Donovan Peoples-Jones had a couple nice catches. David Njoku's had a pretty nice year for, at the tight end position. But I, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens when Watson comes back, if he looks like two years ago Deshaun Watson fighting for an MVP. Because with Amari Cooper, Peoples-Jones, Njoku, Chubb, Hunt, you have the building blocks of a very potent offense. Of course, uh, the headline for this game has been Bailey Zappi. And for some reason, I, I don't know if it just started this year or maybe it started previously and I'm just now uh, getting hip to it. But there's this this rush to want to make these backup quarterbacks more than what they are. And, you know, for, for years, when it, when, it, when it came to a Patrick Mahomes or certainly a Lamar Jackson uh, and, and quarterbacks like that, I've heard people say after they won MVPs, oh, just wait till the league gets film on them. Just wait till the league gets film on them. These defensive coordinators haven't adjusted them. Just, just wait till they see to see them. Why, why is it that they got to be good for three or four seasons before you believe in them? But you see a Cooper Rush or a Bailey Zappi have a couple of good quarters and all of a sudden, you want to say that this guy's great. I want to remind people that with three and a half minutes left in the first half of this game, the score was three to three. Okay, this, this, this wasn't Bailey Zappi came out of the first possession and turned the Patriots offense around. That's not what happened in this game. What happened is 
The Browns turned the ball over a lot. Jacoby Brissett, and, and again, this is my point about backup quarterbacks. A couple weeks ago, everybody was saying, oh, look, look at Brissett. He's doing a great job holding down the fort. The Browns can hang in there as long as Brissett keeps playing like this. When you're a backup quarterback, you're usually a backup for a reason. And the longer you play, usually the reasons why you're a backup start to show more and more. Jacoby Brissett comes in this game and turns the ball over three times. That was the difference in the game. It was not Bailey Zappi with Jacoby Brissett setting up easy plays. The second play of the game, Jacoby Brissett throws an interception. Picked off by Kyle Duggar, playing the most important position in football, that playmaker safety position. That's the tone setter of the, of the game. Kyle Duggar. Now, with Zappi, I'll give him credit because he's doing what a backup is supposed to do. Don't hurt us. Don't hurt us. Just make the plays that are there and don't do anything over the top. That's what he's doing. You look at like his best play of the day was throwing a touchdown to Hunter Henry on a play where Grant Delpit fell, fell down. That wasn't anything special that Bailey Zappi did. That was just clumsiness on the on the Browns, you know, playing like the Browns. That's what happened there. So let, let's pump the brakes on this whole Zappi happy hour and all this other stuff. Let's see him do it for a month or two because the last few times you've tried to elevate these backup quarterbacks, you've seen what happens when they have to start for the fifth or sixth or seventh time. So if I'm McCorkle Jones, I'm not worried about losing my job to Bailey Zappi. I'm going to say that now. Of course, Belichick's not going to say anything because he never does. Bel- Belichick wouldn't wouldn't t- wouldn't uh, commit to starting Bailey Zappi over Tom Brady or Tom Brady for Bailey Zappi. That that that's how Belichick rolls. So don't read into anything when he says I can't name a starter right now. He's 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 probably can't to you. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Uh, a story, another story in this game for me was our uh, Tyquan Thornton. Uh, a receiver that the Patriots drafted. We know that the Patriots last year did not have big play uh, threats at the receiver position. So they go and they draft a receiver who ran a sub 4 340 at the combine. He's been hurt. He broke his collarbone in the preseason. But this is somebody the Patriots have been eager to get involved in the offense. And this was his second game. So it wasn't his debut. But he scores two touchdowns in this game. So you see that they are intent on getting him the ball and getting him the ball in crucial situations. They were both red zone touchdowns. Even though he's this, you know, deep ball threat, they were red zone touchdowns for Thornton. So they want to get him the ball as much as possible. So Taekwon Thornton is a guy to watch out in this offense. He's not going to be the number one receiver. I think that'll stay with Jacoby Myers, Wolfpack. But I think Taekwon Thornton is a name to keep in mind in this offense moving forward. Um, other thing I want to do is I want to... Sh- one, give a shout out to Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett becomes the official all-time Brown sack leader in this game. But I also want to get one of these pet peeves off my chest. Miles Garrett did not play, does not play for the same franchise that Clay Matthews Sr. played for. Okay, Clay Matthews had the record before Miles Garrett. When Clay Matthews played for the Browns, those Browns are now the Baltimore Ravens. Miles Garrett should have been had this sack record, and I'm tired of seeing this. And this is not just football. This is in sports. Don't sit there and try to rewrite history. Okay, the Cleveland Browns and Baltimore Ravens history was combined until the new Cleveland Browns showed up, and then all of a sudden we want to act like these Cleveland Browns are the same ones. No, this team was established in 99. The team with the stupid elf in midfield, that team was established in 99. You want to combine history? No, we're not doing that. Miles Garrett been had this record. And if the if the Cleveland Browns came back with the same exact team, but they were the Cleveland Guardians or something stupid, the Cleveland Browns records would still belong to the Baltimore Ravens. It makes no sense. The Houston Oilers records are with the Tennessee Titans. Why? Because when Houston got an expansion team, they didn't reuse Oilers. Like, stop with the nonsense. We saw the Cleveland Browns move to Baltimore. 
let's not pretend Miles Garrett and Clay Matthews played in the same franchise. So shout out to Garrett for having the official quote unquote sack record for Cleveland, but he's been had that. Stop playing games. All right. Next game we're going to get into again, another one of those three upsets we saw over the weekend. Uh, for me, this was by far the biggest, not because, not just because of who won, but just how decisive it was. The New York Jets go into Lambeau Field and beat the Packers 27 to 10 in a game that just got away from Green Bay in the second half. And again, it's not so much that the Jets um, won this game that's shocking to me. Had they won this game by a field goal or something like that, I'd have said, okay, yep, these are the up-and-coming Jets. But for the Jets to march in there and take this game over in the second half, that's what I didn't expect to see in this game. Uh, I will say with the Jets, they have completely either changed or reestablished their identity. The first three games of the year, Joe Flacco was the starter. Joe Flacco averaged 51.7 passes a game. In three Zach Wilson starts, he's averaged 25 passes a game. They are throwing the ball not even half as much with Zach Wilson. And Zach Wilson, he, he's the guy that's the number two overall pick. Okay, Joe Flacco is just the old aging veteran brought in there to say, tutor the young guy. So, so it's odd to me to see that with Joe Flacco, the guy who was just there to hold a spot, you air the ball out with him. And some of that was game circumstance, but not all of it when you look at how the, that game flow went. And with Zach Wilson, you've decided to be conservative, come and make this offense, despite all the investments. There. There's a lot of investments between free agency and draft stock. There's a lot of investments in those wide receivers for New York. So to see them completely abandon the passing game to the point where Elijah Moore is on Twitter talking about the fact that I didn't get a single target in this game. I'm trying to be happy, but this is ridiculous. It's just interesting to see. On the flip side, Brees Hall. Brees Hall averaged seven carries a game when Flacco was the starter. Since Wilson has become the starter, Brees Hall has gone from averaging seven carries a game to over 18 carries a game. His workload is more than double. And he's answered the bell and then some. Reese Hall is literally carrying this offense. And I didn't think the Jets would commit to him this quickly, uh, especially with Michael Carter still running efficiently when he gets the chance. But I'm, I'm proud of the Jets of acknowledging that, hey, th this is our guy. This is our playmaker. And we're going to keep giving him the ball no matter what we invested in the quarterback. No matter what we invested in the pieces around in the passing game, no matter what we might have invested in the other running back. Brees Hall is carrying this offense, and it's it's working for the Jets. And it's interesting the Jets because they are having the tone set by rookies on both sides of the ball. You got Brees Hall on the offense, and then you got Ahmad Gardner on the defense. And he's not the only one on that defense making plays. Don't get that wrong. But – Gardner just has a different level of confidence. And you saw him walking off the field with the cheese head. This guy just had a supreme level of confidence. And it has really been infectious for that entire defense. You are seeing that defense play with a confidence that I don't, I haven't seen the Jets play with that kind of confidence on their defense since Rex Ryan was going to AFC championship games. So it's, it's amazing to see the impact he's had on this team. Uh, as far as why the Jets won this game, in addition to those guys, domination at the line of scrimmage. Both sides of the ball. I mean, it's, it's that's part of what surprised me. Winning Williams at times took this game over. And it just it didn't just stop with 
making plays in the backfield. It didn't just stop with getting sacks on Aaron Rodgers. He, he threw a, a blocked field goal in there for good measure. And Michael Clemens, another rookie, he comes up with a punt block that leads to the Jets' touchdown that seemingly put this game away. So these Jets rookies are really stepping up, and you got to give them credit. On the Packers' side, uh, it's going to be continuing to make the same point week after week. This team should be a run-based team. When they're not, they're in trouble. Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon combined for 60 yards in this game, 60 yards rushing. If you tell me that stat before the game, I'm picking the Jets. I, I will go out on a limb and say that the Packers will not win a game this year where Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon combined for 60 rushing yards. I will say they will not win one game with those two not being more productive on the ground and not getting more opportunity. I mean, in this game, Braxton Berrios had more rushing yards than Aaron Jones. You're going to lose every time that happens. It's one thing that Brees Hall and Michael Carter each both had more than Aaron Jones on the ground, but Braxton Berrios too? Nope, can't happen. So Green Bay, not only are they going to lose, they're going to score 14 points or fewer anytime they can't get Jones and Dylan going. And the thing is, Sammy Watkins is out. Shocker, we're past week two. Of course Sammy Watkins is out. Christian Watson's out. Now Randall Cobb is out, and thankfully he avoided a fracture, but it still doesn't look good for him. How many receivers do you have to lose to realize maybe throwing the ball is not going to get us anywhere? Not with this roster. It wasn't a great receiver core with everybody. Now half of your receiving core is gone. Run the football, Green Bay. And I do have to say, Elton Jenkins, who was, you know, the Packers missed him dearly when he was out and injured before. Elton Jenkins had a lot of penalties in this game. He's got to step his game up too. Uh, David Bakhtiari, they waited a long time to get him back. He still hasn't been consistent or a full-time player. Uh, they need him to round into form. That Green Bay offensive line was supposed to be a strength. They got beat up yesterday. And, you know, moving forward, that's something to keep an eye on because, like I said, the Packers have to run the ball to be effective. And if their offensive line is getting beat up, they've got no shot. The fact that both New York teams, and if you want to throw the only real New York team in there, Buffalo, are five and one, five and one, four and two, is beyond me. It's it doesn't compute in my brain. Um, the fact that, like you said, the Jets went into Lambeau on a cold, rainy day that is supposed to be, you know, home field advantage for the Packers and just completely dominated them. Um, which it's only funny because, like you said, it was like. 3-3, like almost at halftime, and then just the second half happened, and it was blocked kick. They, I think they had two blocked field goals in this game and the blocked punt. Um, Quinnen Williams is showing you why he was a top three pick in the draft, not this year, obviously. Um, and all the young guys that the Jets have invested in besides Zach Wilson are starting to show why they were taken, where they were taken in the draft, and are actually paying dividends. Like you said, Sauce Gardner already looks like a shutdown corner in this league. Most people thought he'd be a good corner. No one knew if like what happened in college would translate to the NFL. It looks like it's translating almost exactly how it was in college. Um, Brees Hall, they might have the offensive rookie of the year and defensive rookie of the year on the same team. And I don't even know the last time that's happened or if that's ever happened, but the Jets could have that. Brees Hall has been killing it the last 
three weeks. Um, not only rushing and he's receiving as well, which is a double-headed monster right there, just getting stats galore, which will help you get a Rookie of the Year award. And then, as you said, Sauce Gardner just locked down corner, which I don't, you can't even describe how that changes a defense when you have half of a field shut down. Um, I guess I got to give all credit to Robert Sala and, and, and getting out of the Adam Gase era of New York Jets football because I feel like that organization, you just assume they're going to be like the Adam Gase era. I don't I hope that guy never gets another coaching job in the NFL. Um, <laughs> but they're really, they're really buying into the Sala, you know, and he's a good coach. That defense with the 49ers was no joke when he was the defensive coordinator there. So, um, all, all props to the Jets. I'm with you. I think they realize Zach Wilson can't throw it 50 times a game and they're going to win games. They definitely switched their mentality to a more of a 49ers type, uh, team mentality. We're going to try and wear you down with the run and Zach Wilson, please just convert third downs for us. Like it, and it's working. So, I mean, but also, is beating the Packers as impressive as we thought it was? Not anymore. Not after not after the Giants have done it, then the Jets have done it. It doesn't seem like it's as impressive as a win. Um, but still, it's still the Packers and Lambeau. That's not an easy, that's not an easy W. Uh, moving on to the Green Bay side. I know Packer fans are going to say, I know you guys want us to run. You guys want us to run. But how can you run when you're loading eight in the box? Guess what? Nick Chubb gets 12 in the box, and he's still leading the league in rushing. So um, you have Aaron Rodgers as a quarterback. The Browns have Jacoby Brissett. And if the Browns can still run the ball, you can run the ball. Um, Your receiving core is terrible. We all know this. The Packers knew this going into the offseason. The Packers know this now. They didn't try and trade for Robbie Anderson, not saying that he's a great wide receiver. He's still an upgrade over who you have. I don't, I don't, there's no rumblings of the Packers trying to sign Odell Beckham or even T.Y. Hilton at this point. Laquan Treadwell, I would take anybody that's in the free agency market right now. Will Fuller, y'all signed Sammy Watkins, let's just get another guy that gets injured. Get Will Fuller on the team. (laughs) I'm just saying, they they didn't try to get anybody. Like, I know you got Sammy Watkins, but again, when has he ever played a full, healthy season? So you need to commit to the run. And Aaron Jones, we said this in the Vikings game. I feel like we've said this like every other game. So I feel like he'll get 20 carries in one game. And then the next game he gets five or six. It just, it doesn't make any sense. And Aaron Jones is a great running back. You have to give him the ball. And then Aaron Rodgers, his whole attitude is just like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be playing football. So I just, I'm just confused by, you know, you paid this man all this money, and now it seems like he's all upset that Devontae Adams isn't there, but he should know why Devontae Adams isn't there. And, you know, you you wanted this. You wanted the bag. You wanted to secure the future, like, with all the money. So throw to the guys. They're going to drop them. They're going to drop them. Just keep throwing. That's what you got to do. You're a multiple-time MVP winner. You're supposed to be one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. Keep throwing the ball. Don't sit there and pout and mope. I would rather see you pull a Tom Brady and get in the guy's faces on the sideline. At least do something. Instead of just sitting there pouting, do something. You know what I mean? I'd rather you see you do something instead of just pouting and acting like you're checking out of the game. Like, that's just... If I was a Packers fan, I'd be so irritated with just how 
the season has played out to this point. The next game is Jacksonville at Indianapolis, where Indianapolis escaped with a W here against the Jags. Um, I don't know why Matt Ryan is throwing it almost 60 times a game, but he is. Um, I mean, I understand Jonathan Taylor wasn't there and Naeem Hines wasn't in the game, but still, I don't I don't want my 38-year-old quarterback throwing it almost 60 times a game, but that's what's happening. Um, the Jags are the Jags. Uh, you know, I I had a lot of hope for them after the first three or four weeks of the season. They were playing hard. They were in games. And this is a game they should have won. Let's be honest. If anyone watched this game, Jacksonville had control of this game until they didn't, until they were the Jaguars. Um, even though Indianapolis won by a touchdown, this was a late touchdown to take the lead. It was a blown coverage. They let Alex Pierce run like 20 yards behind the corner to get them within touchdown range on a fourth down or third, third and long. So it was, it was something like that. And they just blew the coverage. So it's just the same old Jags. Um, you know, I really had high hopes for them this year. The funny part is though, their division's so bad. They're still, they could still win the division. So all is not lost um, for them, but they're going to have to turn it around quickly. They can't keep losing games like this. You know, these are the type of games that you have to end up winning if you want to be, you know, turning your franchise around. Um, shout out to Indianapolis. They're now 3-2-1 and one somehow, some way. Uh, and they have a win on the Chiefs on their record. So, you know, all is not lost. You're in a really bad division. They can still win this division. Um you know, Michael Pittman is pretty much their entire offense. It's without Jonathan Taylor there. They need Jonathan Taylor back, even if he's not fully healthy. They just need him back as like a decoy because everyone pretty much knows where the ball is going. The fact that Alex Pierce is starting to get some catches and get involved is a, is a good thing for the Colts. Um, we know he had a couple of drops the first two, three weeks. He had the concussion, um, you know, so him getting back in and just getting to the flow of everything. Uh, the thing that excited me the most about this game from a, just a fan standpoint is that Travis Etienne Jr. finally had a couple big plays, showed the explosiveness that we thought he would have coming into the league. So that was good to see if you're a Jags fan. Um, but yeah, shout out to the Colts. And it looks like Frank Wright lives the fight another week. Yeah, Frank Wright hopped right on off that hot seat these last couple of weeks between uh, the Colts finally looking like the team that we either expected or hoped for them to look. Uh, going into the season, uh, we both thought the Colts would win this division uh, fairly handily. And uh, um, the first couple of weeks in the season, I said that this team, the Colts, was the most disappointing team in my mind for the first couple of weeks of the season. So maybe they're starting to round into form here. It certainly didn't look like it at the beginning of this game. <laughs> in this game, it looked like it could be uh, another beatdown from the Jaguars. Uh, the Jamichael Hasty touchdown about 50 yards or so was just just too easy. I mean, I, I would have scored on that play. I mean, it's just he didn't have to change direction or anything one time. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, boy, you know, here go the Colts with the chance to really hop right back into this division. They, they're going to sit here and blow this. But uh, they got their act together after that. Um, I will say this game is just another reminder, and I you know, preach this all the time, that you know, you can have a quarterback who does not look good, and when you give them better weapons, things change completely. The first time the Colts and Jaguars played, uh, you alluded to the Alec Pierce injury. He was out of that game. Michael Pittman Jr. missed the game against the Jaguars as well with a quad injury. Without those two receivers, 
Matt Ryan against the Jaguars, zero touchdowns, three interceptions, 195 yards. Now, same quarterback goes against the same defense, but now you have Michael Pittman Jr. and you have Alec Pierce, and he goes for 389 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. In case there's any question about who's more important in the quarterback wide receiver relationship, it's the receivers that are more important. Pay attention, Bears, Ravens, and any other team that wants consistent passing in their offense. Even the Packers are showing you. You kind of need, no matter how good your quarterback is, you need the weapons around you. There is no such thing as I can take average weapons and make them better. No. The weapons have to make you look good as the quarterback. That, that is how it goes. And these weapons, Pittman and Pierce, they made Matt Ryan look good. Now, this is Matt Ryan's third game this year with 350 yards or more passing. So to, to Patrick's point, they're airing the ball a lot to have an aging quarterback who is absolutely no threat to move around and, and do anything but throw from the pocket. I will give Matt Ryan credit, though. The last touchdown, and they talked about it a little bit, on the third 13, with their in field goal range, they've got a chance to take the lead with a field goal, and they decide to go for it all. And Matt Ryan, while under pressure, while getting hit in his knees, which I don't believe was called, because, you know, Matt Ryan's you know, expendable at this age of his career, so he's not getting that call. Matt Ryan threw a dime. Dime. Pierce for that go-ahead touchdown. Dime. Yeah, that, that was one of the most beautiful throws I've ever seen Matt Ryan make. So, you know, I've, I've never been all that impressed with Matt Ryan, but I got to give credit where it's due. And that was a heck of a throw to put this game away. Uh, as you said, Jacksonville just... You know, it just seems like they can't get right. You know, it's just, it just, it just how it feels. It just seems like they can't get right. Everything looked like it was going well. I will say that, curiously, and I've talked about this with the Eagles, you know, I just don't understand why when you have two good running backs, or at least two solid running backs, I mean, everybody says Travis Jeff Etienne, for first-round pick. Uh, James Robinson is the guy who made his name uh, in the league previously. Why the goal line or inside the five is, is Trevor Lawrence your number one rushing option? I just, I just don't understand it. I mean, and again, it, it, it works, but I just don't understand exposing your quarterbacks to potential hits at the goal line when you have quality running backs. I can understand if you don't have them. <laughs> I just don't understand. If you're Jacksonville, everything that this franchise is hoping for in the future rides on Trevor Lawrence living up to the massive hype coming out of college. Why throw him into that situation? And Lawrence did. Uh, run for a decent amount of touchdowns inside the Senate in, in college. So some of that is part of his game, but I just don't understand him being the preferred option in short yardage situations where you're just plowing straight ahead with him when you have two running backs more than capable of doing that while taking that damage off your quarterback. So just another thing that just irks me. But uh, other than that, again, same old Jaguars, like Patrick said, it, it, it starts to feel like we three weeks ago, we were feeling good about this team. They smashed the Chargers. They looked like they could win this division. And now here they are, right where we thought they'd be, third place in the division and, and starting to head in the wrong direction. This game, we'll talk about the Minnesota Vikings somehow, some way improved to 5-1 and one on the season with a 24-16 win over the Miami Dolphins. I'm going to start this off by blowing the whistle. No, I'm sorry. Skyler Thompson was the quarterback, the starting quarterback for the Dolphins in this game. Why? Because we know Tua Tagovailoa was still in concussion protocol. Teddy Bridgewater was dealing with a concussion of his own. Now, Teddy Bridgewater, who is number two on the depth chart, 
Meaning, if he's healthy and Tua Tagovailoa is not, he's the starter. Teddy Bridgewater is not the starter in this game. Meaning, you're not sure that he's back from his concussion. Skyler Thompson hurts his thumb in this game, has to come out, and who comes in? Teddy Bridgewater. Has this franchise learned nothing? Why do you keep putting concussed quarterbacks in the game? And in this case, you didn't even lie about it. At least the other time you tried to lie about it. Oh, no, it was his back. No, it wasn't concussion. This is what you told us. This man's in the concussion protocol. That's the whole reason Skylar Thompson is even a known name now. And you just, hey, oh, now that Skylar Thompson's hurt, you're no longer concussed. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know what it's going to take for the Dolphins to learn their lesson about how to manage concussions, but this is embarrassing to see a franchise be this poor after they've been put under the microscope. And for those curious, uh, too, it looks like he's going to be playing next week, so that, that just adds to the whole concussion story even more, but that's just ridiculous with how uh, these concussions are being managed in Miami. All right, now with that out the way, the Vikings managed to pull off a win in this game. They're doing it without the style points. And it's been interesting because, you know, going into the season, you know, you had Kevin O'Connell come over from the Rams. You expect massive fireworks from this offense. I said Kirk Cousins would be a good fantasy quarterback. Again, I don't believe him in real life. Other people went as far as to say Kirk Cousins is a dark horse MVP or even Michael Irvin going as far as to say MVP favorite to start the season. Kirk Cousins with arguably best wide receiver in football right now. Somebody is certainly in the discussion. There's not five guys better than Justin Jefferson right now. You've got weapons over there in Minnesota. You've got a coordinator, a head coach, who is overseeing explosive offenses. And yet Kirk Cousins this year, in six games, zero games with 300 yards passing. Kirk Cousins had six 300-yard passing games last year. And here's the thing. Last year, Kirk Cousins was 8-8 eight and eight as a starter with those 300-yard games. This year, without the 300-yard games, he's 5-1. and one. What does this go to show? I've been telling people for years, Kirk Cousins has had enough of a supporting cash. You know, and all over here is, look at the yards. Look at the yards. Most overrated stat in football is passing yards. You get less Kirk Cousins, less passing yards, Fewer passing yards, I should say. And what happens? You win more games. You start putting the focus where it should be. Run game and defense. That's how this team is going to win. This defense had two crucial takeaways. One of them was lucky. That's, that's calling what it was. The interception that they got off Bridgewater late. Bounced around like 20 times and somehow never hit the ground before Harrison Smith finally was able to corral it. You come up with that play. You come up with the forced fumble on Jaden. Uh, Jalen Waddle to basically seal the game. And then you have Dalvin Cook put it away. He gets a long touchdown run in front of his hometown friends and family. And that's your formula right there for the Vikings. So as much as I thought that this team would value the stats and having the explosive offense over doing what's best for this team, I'm kind of relieved. It, it looks ugly. The style points are not there. I keep having a refresh the standings to see are the Vikings really five and one but it just goes to show the less you ask Kirk Cousins to do the better that is the recipe for this team moving forward and that's not to say you don't ask him to do anything I'm not going as far as to say you know make him Cooper rush and try to hide it that's not what this is 
but Kirk Cousins in moderation is it. Kirk Cousins is never going to be an MVP. He's never going to be the reason you win. All you're asking right now is don't be the reason we lose, and Cousins is doing okay with that. So give him that credit. The Vikings are 5-1. They seem to finally have figured out the way that's going to help them win, and they may start to pull away with this division if the Packers don't get their act together. Yeah, that's a good blow the whistle on the Dolphins there. Uh, Minnesota 5-1, and one, uh, that's insane. I had them as my seventh team getting in to the NFC playoff picture. It looks like they might – Hey, they're only one game out of being getting a bye, so it's it makes no sense. It is what it is. Uh, their only loss is the beatdown that the Eagles gave them uh, in prime time. But we all know prime time Kirk is is bad Kirk. So, um, yeah, uh, the Dolphins threw for like four hundred something yards this game. Tyreek Hill had a hundred and seventy seven yards, uh, which is just an insane stat that one hundred seventy seven receiving yards. Um, I think we can finally chill out with the Patrick Mahomes made Tyreek Hill or Tyreek Hill made Patrick Mahomes. Tyreek Hill is an amazing wide receiver. Patrick Home Patrick Mahomes is an amazing quarterback. They I'm both they both are still doing amazing things on two different teams. Um and I understand people love the big plays that Tyreek Hill can give you and, and that he, you know, he is a deep threat, but Y'all have to realize Tyreek Hill is one of the best possession receivers in the league. If you don't watch the games, this man catches a lot of balls like behind the line of scrimmage, at the line of scrimmage, one-yard bubble screens, three-yard slant routes, and he'll take those for 30 or 40 yards. They're not just fly routes. Um, so it's impressive to watch him watch him work. Um, but, you know, Miami's defense I thought would be better than what it's been this year. I know they've had some injuries, uh, especially that secondary, which doesn't help. Um, the Dalvin Cook touchdown run, was he only made like one little like hesitation move and was just gone down the middle. Um, you know, it's funny. People hate Tua, and they're like, oh, he's not a good quarterback. The Bills are 3-0 and with Tua. They're 0-3 without Tua. And this is kind of the same thing we saw last year. When Brissett was starting... They went like one and six. And when Tua came in, they almost made the playoffs last year. So for everyone who, for some reason, dislikes Tua, Miami only seems to win with Tua. So uh, Tua, I hope you're healthy. I know they plan for you to start this week coming up against the Steelers. Um, I really, really hope you're healthy. I hope your brain's okay. I don't know if 14 days or 18 days or however many days it's been is enough to fully heal your brain. Um I would personally, if I was to, talk to some other quarterbacks, some other guys who've had a lot of concussions, and just kind of see how it affected them and see, you know, for me, my life is bigger than anything, right? And my profession, sport, I know you're going to make millions of dollars, and I know that's hard to walk away from, but, um, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I can't sit here and say what's best for him. Hopefully the doctors are doing their jobs correctly and, and, and giving him the correct advice and treatment but i would think long and hard about because what happens if he gets another big shot to his head against the steelers Mm -hmm. that's what i'd be worried about three concussions in a 20-day span we'll say i don't i'm yeah you know i i just don't know how that affects you down the road it might not affect him in the next three or four years but when he's 32 40 years old and that's not that's not old 
I know that's old for football players, but that's not old. So um, that's what I'd be most concerned about. But hopefully he's healthy. He's coming back. Miami needs him. Miami's looked terrible without him. Um, and and we'll see if that turns things around. But, yeah, Minnesota's the big, big story here. They're 5-1, and one and they're kind of running away with that division right now. So the next game we have is the Cincinnati Bengals at New Orleans Saints, which almost was another upset. Um, Andy Dalton has made this offense that was doing nothing under Jameis Winston for 12 out of 16 quarters the first three games has gotten this offense into a little bit of a rhythm. I'm not going to be you know, too impressed. It is Andy Dalton. We know what he is. I'm not going to sit here and say he needs to be the starter moving forward. New Orleans is 2-4. and four. It's not like... I'm just saying that there you can tell there's a difference. And he was playing with all backups. No Landry, no Michael Thomas, no Olave. Uh, there was another wide receiver that was injured as well, actually. So they had their top four guys injured in this game. And their offense looked decent. Their defense is the one that let them down. That was terrible tackling on that Jamar Chase final touchdown. Awful. It's not even like Jamar Chase did anything good. He just literally did a 360, just spun with the dude holding him, and then the guy just flew off of him, and he just ran down the sideline. Like, it wasn't even, um, you know, it was Jamar Chase's first big game of the season, um, so that's good for Jamar Chase fancy owners and people who love Joe Burrow, but in reality, Cincinnati should have lost this game. If we're actually talking about this game, if you watch this game, Cincinnati should have lost this game. Uh, they pulled it out. Um, like I said, there was bad tackling and... and just bad defense down the stretch by New Orleans. Um, but, you know, Cincinnati this is 3-3 three and three now. You know, they, they started off slow. Their offense seems to be getting it together the last couple of weeks. I still need Joe Mixon to give me more on the offensive side of the ball. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, I'd be concerned because, again, this was New Orleans' like practice squad, and they put 26 on you. So, um, you know... Uh, there were the New Orleans defense really, really let them down this game though. Cause Joe Burrow had like a 15 yard scramble for a touchdown, which I don't understand how you let him get out of a sack and then scramble 15 yards for a touchdown. Um, again, the Jamar chase touchdown to kind of seal the game was terrible tackling. Um, but yeah, Cincinnati's right in the thick of it in their division and, uh, New Orleans because their division has been so bad this year, they're in the thick of it still too. So if you look at the standings in the NFL, there's like five teams that are, you know, you got six and zero, five and one, four and two, and then the rest is three and three, two and four, and then the really bad team. So this is definitely going to be an interesting NFL season all the way down to the wire because uh, everything is just jumbled up right now in the standings wise. You know, in the last uh, segment, I talked about the mismanagement of concussions with the Miami Dolphins and how they just seem to not be able to get their act together when it comes to that. Chris Olave, we saw what happened to him last week. We saw him get basically piled driven into the ground and have a very scary fall or uh, bounce back off the ground after his head hit. Chris Olave practiced on Friday in full. Uh, he practiced for this game like a player who would play in this game would prepare to, to practice. And the Saints still held him out. So it's interesting to me that it seems like the the ripples from the Tua Tagovailoa situation seem to be affecting other teams more than the Dolphins. That that just amazes me. Uh, I talked um, a couple of weeks ago about how the Colts kept Shaquille Leonard and another player out of a game because of concussions. And they, the Colts came out and said, 
we don't care what the concussion protocol says. We're not playing these guys. Uh, in this case with Chris Olave, like I said, he was he was cleared to practice on Friday. So he's in decent shape. And they still said, you know what? Even with Michael Thomas out, even with Jarvis Landry out, we're not going to push Olave in this concussion-sensitive time. So, you know, just wanted to just put that out there and just to show how differently other teams are handling concussions right now versus the Dolphins. Uh, to get into the game itself, all the injuries that the Saints have had in their receiver core, and of course to Winston as well, have caused them to have to be more creative and resourceful on the offensive end. So you're seeing Taysom Hill come in more as a change of pace quarterback. Now, usually he comes in and he's going to run the ball 90% of the time. And somehow, some way, teams <laughs> struggle to figure that out. Certainly Seattle, that to this day, hasn't figured out that Taysom Hill's probably going to run. But Hill did throw the ball four times in this game. So they mixed it up with Hill some. So it's like when they had to go to Andy Dalton, they had to go to all these backup receivers. It's like, okay, how can we mix things up? Because normally you would just go to Alvin Kamara more, but he hasn't been himself uh, for whatever reason. So now you got to get even more creative. They pull up a guy, Rashid Shaheed, out of Weaver State, a guy who probably didn't come into the season thinking he was actually going to get real work. He scores a 44-yard touchdown in this game. So credit to him because that, that is a dream-come-true type of situation, and he's fast, <laughs> I got to say. I haven't seen much Weaver State football, but I can confirm that Rashid Shaheed can run. So the, the Saints are getting as resourceful as they can, and you, you give them credit for that, but they – Ultimately, there's only so much you can do when you're missing so much from your skill positions on the offensive end. So, you know, credit to them for making this competitive, a game that they certainly had their chances to win. I uh, just couldn't quite pull it out. I'm blowing the whistle on Blake Gillikin. On the Saints' drive before the game-winning drive for the Bengals, the Saints had to punt the ball, okay? You're going to give the ball back to Cincinnati. Now, you're punting from your like your own third. It's not like you're punting from the end zone. So you expect that maybe you can bury these guys deep. Blake Gilligan, wasn't a bad snap. You're indoors. It wasn't the weather. You weren't under pressure. Kicks a 29-yard punt. So now instead of having the Bengals backed up and having to earn their last drive, they're already starting at their own fort. You have got to be better than that. Now, for those unfamiliar with Blake Gilligan, which is probably everyone, he kicked an 81-yard punt this preseason. Not like he doesn't have a leg. I don't know what happened on that kick. But in that situation, you got to be better. So I'm blowing the whistle on you for setting up your team to lose there. And you talked about Jamar Chase. And the game-winning touchdown being too easy. The Saints really, as, as much as they missed all those guys on the offensive side of the ball, they missed Marshawn Lattimore even more. Without Lattimore, the Saints just didn't have an answer for Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase had 132 yards in the game. That's his season high. And when you watch it, uh, Paulson Adebo was on him at times. When Chase lined up on the right side, it was Adebo who would run with him. Adebo couldn't cover him, and on the when he lined up on the left side, it was against Bradley Roby, and that went even worse because not only could Roby not cover him, Roby couldn't tackle him. 
Roby had several key missed tackles in this game. And on that last touchdown, it was Roby. When you're talking about that, that little pivot on the sideline to run straight down the field, it was Roby that came up and missed that tackle. He had all kinds of problems trying to contain Chase. And the thing with Chase is, you just talked about this with Tyree Killsum, Chase is a big run-after-catch guy. He's the guy that's going to catch screens and slants for a lot of the game and try to take those to the house. And if you miss as the first defender, that's what sets up the big plays for Chase. So it was good to see Chase get back in the rhythm because we just hadn't seen the big play from Jamar Chase in the last few weeks. Uh, you saw it in this game, and it was at the expense mostly of Bradley Roby, but also Paulson Adebo got some. And they just really, really, really missed Marshawn Lattimore in this game. I think if the Saints had Lattimore for this game, even with the injuries on offense, they probably would have won. But, uh, again, injuries already rearing their ugly head. In you know, we're six weeks into the season, and there are teams losing games basically because of the injury report. All right, next game we're going to talk about the New York Giants. Woo! Patrick's New York Giants. The New York football giants with a 24-20 victory over the Baltimore Ravens to up their record to a surprising 5-1. and one. I picked the Giants to win this game, not confidently, but I did pick them. And when you look at the Giants, they are right now just, they're sticking true to their identity. They're not panicking. They're accepting their strengths and their weaknesses, and they're making it happen. Uh, they know that they got to rely on Saquon Barkley for offense. That's no surprise. There's no shock. But uh, they're starting to piece together the rest of the offense because it can't just be a one-man band. You know, and I've said going back to the beginning of the year, you're not no matter how good Saquon Barkley is, even if he stays healthy for the whole season, which we all hope he does, you aren't going but so far if your top receivers are Richie James Jr. and David Sills the fifth. With all due respect to them, those can't be your top options in the passing game if you think you're going to go somewhere. So you're seeing bits and pieces start to get incorporated in that Giants offense outside of those guys. Daniel Bellinger is becoming something of a force in the red zone these last few weeks. He's somebody to look out for in the red zone. He's somebody that Daniel Jones trusts, and he's somebody the coaching staff is starting to trust. He's getting opportunities, uh, certainly as a receiver, but also going back to last week, he got an opportunity as well, he was going to be a passer and then turned into a runner and scored. So he's finding resourceful ways to score. And again, this is a Giants offense that needs all the points they can get. Wondell Robinson finally gets back in this game after injuring his knee several weeks ago, all the way back to week one. He gets his first touchdown as a rookie in this game. And he's somebody to keep an eye on because Wondell Robinson brings an element to this offense that they don't have as far as somebody who you can throw easy passes to, and he can make them into big plays. He's a gadget player. He scored on a on something of a gadget play, gadget-ish play. He's going to be some something of a force at or near the line of scrimmage. And if the Giants can figure out how to unlock him and turn his short plays into big plays, this offense, I'm not going to say it's going to be super explosive, but it's going to be interesting. It could get even more interesting if they could get anything out of Kadarius Tony. But if they can keep incorporating Bellinger, keep incorporating Robinson, there's more potential for this offense than there was a month ago. Uh, defensively, it was nice to see. So in this game, you did have the, the battle of the teams who drafted the players that I had one and two on my big board in the draft. So Kyle Hamilton was my number one player. Kayvon Thibodeau was my number two player. 
Tyler Hamilton has done not a whole lot with the Ravens so far. He had one big uh, forced fumble to help win a game for the Ravens. But other than that, it's been uh, a bit of a rough ride for Hamilton. I'll acknowledge that. I'm still hopeful he can uh, develop into something. But on the Giants side, it was Kayvon Thibodeau who came through uh, with a big play in this game uh, with the forced fumble and fumble recovery on Lamar Jackson to basically help seal this win for the Giants. So it's good to see Kayvon Thibodeau. Again, we're just all grateful that he avoided a serious injury in the preseason when he took a cheap shot hit from Thaddeus Moss. And now you're starting to see this Kayvon Thibodeau. We've been talking about him for years. If you're a college football fan, you're talking about Thibodeau for years. You're starting to see some of that potential shine in big moments, and that's huge for the Giants. Uh, on the Baltimore side, you know, unfortunately, you got to look at Lamar Jackson here. And Lamar Jackson and somebody that's certainly been lauded on this show certainly look like a guy that's going to be an MVP candidate three weeks into the season. But this is why you don't discuss MVP three weeks into the season. So three weeks into this season, Lamar Jackson, his first three games, 10 touchdown passes, three interceptions. You still don't like the three interceptions in three games, but the 10 touchdown passes, you're like, all right, we like this. Last three games, three touchdown passes, four interceptions. And the problem is too many of these turnovers are coming in the fourth quarter. And in this game against the Giants specifically, yes, the interception he threw late was on a bad snap. And, you know, that's on Linderbaum most likely. But you got to know when to eat it. Now, it was one thing to throw an interception in the end zone on a fourth down play where you feel like you have to give your guy a chance because you don't want to turn the ball over on downs. In this game, you were up on that play. And I understand it's a third down, but you can punt. And you can force the Giants, again, uh, improving but not in great offense, you can force them to go the length of the field. And you didn't do it. You tried to force a play. You threw a jump ball to a 300-pound fullback, which normally is not a good idea. And unsurprisingly, it got intercepted because somebody was able to get to the ball before a 300-pound fullback could get to it. Those are the kind of plays you can't make. And, you know, the last fumble, again, too reckless with the ball in the pocket. That's something that's been an on-and-off problem with Lamar Jackson going back to his rookie season. Uh, fumbling without really having to be hit hard to fumble. He's got to clean it up. Two turnovers in the last three and a half minutes of this game. It, it was the difference. And, you know, we talked about turnovers before with some other games. Turnovers are a major factor here. Lamar Jackson has to value the football more. We love the explosive plays. We love uh, the flashes he shows as, as a passer, but he's got to figure it out. And these last couple games, he hasn't had Rashad Bateman. This team has no depth at the receiver position. So without Bateman, there's no go-to person for this offense. Devin DuVernay has had a nice start to the season, but he is not a go-to number one option. So, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. But just because you don't have great options on the outside does not mean you got to start turning the football over. You've got to find a way to protect the football and, you know, make things happen, but not force the issue. Lamar Jackson has to find that balance. He has to know the narratives are out there. He has to know the money is on the line, and he just has to avoid as, as much as he wants to make every play the highlight play Sometimes you just got to say the smart play, the conservative play is the right play to make. And I hope moving forward, you see more of that out of Jackson because he's too great of a player to have this type of narrative hanging over his head. Just in case y'all didn't hear, Julius, the 5-1 New York football giants. Um, 
No, I'm shocked as anybody that they're five and one. I picked the Ravens to win this game, and the Giants keep surprising me, and I am not mad about it at all. I will gladly keep taking W's when I pick the other team to win. I do not care. Um, again, <clears throat> the Ravens had 410 yards of offense. The Giants had 260, and they won the game. This just goes to show you that, once again, passing yards and total offense is overrated. Not saying that you don't want to get 400 yards of offense, but they only had 20 points to show for it. So you can move up and down the field, but are you scoring or are you kicking field goals? You know, and, and you know, it hurts me to say this, but I'm, I'm blowing the whistle on Lamar Jackson. I didn't think I'd ever do this. Um, that poor snap pickup, 360 throw to Patrick Ricard, which was an interception. It just that's something you do as a rookie. That's something you do as a second year quarterback. You're trying to use your athleticism to make a play. As Julia said, you're winning the game. There's no need to try and force that. It's not like it was fourth down. You got you got to keep the play alive. Seasons on the line. Games on the line. You could have eaten that, or you could even have thrown it away. If you can do the 180 throw to the middle of the field, you could have thrown it out of bounds. So then you don't even lose the yards, and you can just punt the ball away. So um, that that was disappointing to see, you know, just a mistake like that where Lamar just is always trying to make stuff happen, and I don't blame him. You know, Patrick Mahomes does the same thing. Josh Allen does the same thing, and they don't get crucified for it. I don't. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, I understand why. He's won a Super Bowl. He's an MVP. Lamar Jackson's also an MVP. Josh Allen's not an MVP. Don't know why. He doesn't get crucified for making bad decisions, like not able to spike a ball or throwing it at the feet of his receiver whenever it's fourth down, they could win the game. But anyway, um, Ravens fans, just just relax, okay? Because Lamar Jackson, before this season, if y'all had a 10-point lead, was like 32-3 and in his career. The Ravens are, have lost, I think they've had a 10-point lead in every game this season, and they're 3-3. Three and three. So... Um, yeah, y'all have lost some games that you should have definitely have won, but it's not all on Lamar Jackson. Like, has he made some bad plays at the quarterback position, especially the New York Giants game? Yes. If you want to blame the loss on Lamar for the Giants game, I can agree with you there. But you can't blame him for the Miami game. That man had a historic performance. The defense decided to give up 28 points in the fourth quarter. Lamar doesn't play defense, so let's pump the brakes on that one. The Buffalo Bills game, you could say John Harbaugh should have kicked the field goal, you know, but that's a coach's decision. Lamar, Lamar could say, I want to go for it, but the coach at the end of the day has to do what's best for the team. So uh, it was fourth down. You can't be mad about him throwing an interception. It was fourth down. Who cares? It doesn't matter anyway. Wouldn't matter if he threw the interception or not. <laughs> like <I'd> be... <coughs> People act like, the interception is what made them lose the game. No, it had no bearing. It would have been a turnover on downs anyway. So, um, you know, pump the brakes. Lamar, as you can tell, is your entire team right now. You have no wide receivers besides Mark Andrews. So, if I'm the Ravens, I'm calling Odell Beckham's phone or his agent's phone, or I'm looking at Will Fuller. I'm looking at someone to just bring in a body at this point in the wide receiver room because... Besides Bateman, and Rashad Bateman's still young, so I don't want all my receiving core to be around Rashad Bateman. So 
Um, if I'm the Ravens, I am calling somebody ASAP. Uh, again, as for the Giants' day ball, I've said this every week, I feel like. I feel like he is the real deal, great hire. Um, you know, you can't say enough about a, a, the GM coming in as well to kind of re-solidify that organization because this organization has been a dumpster fire for over a decade. And the fact that Dayball and the new GM have come in and, and have really, it seems like, have turned this organization around. I'm not going to be too pressed because if they end up losing the next 11 games and are 5-12 and 12 for the season, that would be a typical Giants thing to do. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Uh, Wink coming in as the defensive coordinator has been a huge, huge pickup for this team. Dayball is the head coach. Um Again, the offense isn't playing lights out, but they're doing enough to win games. Like, Daniel Jones is not costing you games. Um, Kadarius Toney, I know he's been injured and has been kind of like DNP's coach's decision. We need to figure out what's going on with him because if if the Giants aren't going to play him, trade him. He was a high draft pick. I'm sure somebody, I'm sure somebody out there would trade for him and give you something back. Uh, Galladay, at this point, just cut him. I don't even care. Take 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 the... The hit, because I'm going to share a stat, Julius, which is a, my other blow the whistle for this game. Since signing Galladay to a $70 million deal and drafting Kadarius Tony, Andrew Thomas has more receiving touchdowns than both of them combined. I did see that. For those of you who don't know, Andrew Thomas is a left tackle. He has more receiving touchdowns than a guy the Giants are paying $70 million and their first-round draft pick from a few years ago. So let that simmer for a little bit. But, hey, I'm all on the day ball train. If him and the GM don't want those guys, I'd get rid of them then. Do something. There's no point to keep them in the locker room. There's no point to have them on the team if they're not going to play. Uh, Wondell Robinson coming back and getting a touchdown uh, and, and looking healthy off that knee injury looks good for them. They do need another dynamic player, especially since Shep got hurt. Um, Slayton, I love I love seeing Slayton on the field. Um, so I, I, Richie James and and David Sills are not starting wide receivers in this league. I'm sorry. So they, I would love to see a o, OBJ reunion in New York as well. I don't think it happened because of Galladay's contract. But hey, they're five and one, and I'm I'm all on. They got me. I'm sucked in now. Six weeks into the season, I'm now hooked, and I can't <laughs> wait for the rest of this. I know I'm probably gonna be disappointed by the end of the year, but. Damn you, the Giants. You've sucked me back in. All right, the next game, the quarterback matchup we all wanted to see this week. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Tom Brady versus Kenny Pickett. According to the graphic that was on this game before the game, that's that's what they showed. They showed a career quarterback comparison. Makes no sense uh, <laughs> since Kenny Pickett's played two games. Tom Brady's played 50,000. So, yeah, that was a cool quarterback comparison. But anyway, Pittsburgh... With the upset of the week over Tampa Bay, twenty to eighteen, uh, Tom Brady screaming at his offensive linemen like they're his children and wife. So, um, you know, it just was not a good look for Tampa Bay. Tom Brady is looking old. Uh, Max Kellerman called this cliff dive ten years ago. You know, he said he's going to fall off the cliff. It's finally happened. Um, I don't know what's going on with Tom Brady. I mean, I do know what's going on. The offensive line is in shambles besides Wharfs. Um, Julius kind of pointed this out week one. Uh, I also have pointed it out multiple times. Uh, when you have a 45-year-old quarterback who likes to stand in the pocket, you need to have an offensive line that can keep him clean. 
uh, and it's just not happening right now. Um, but Tom Brady needs that, right? He he needs that at this point in his career. Julius called this last year, even though he had the most yards in the league. He said that he looked like he was declining with his accuracy and his precision. I said this last year and this year that his accuracy is the reason Godwin's been hurt twice. I'm also a little biased. Godwin's one of my favorite wide receivers. Um, but uh, Brady definitely looks like he's declining, which would only make sense. He's 45 years old. Uh, but but Tampa Bay needs Tom Brady if they want to win because the fact that they lost to Pittsburgh should be an eye-opener, awakening loss for this team, and it might be what this team needs to to get over the hump or to 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 light that fire that they need because this should be an awakening loss for them. Moving over to the Pittsburgh side of the ball, Mike Tomlin, I love you. I'm glad you got another W. This is amazing. Um, maybe, possibly, you know, you might not have a losing record this year, but this was definitely a, a game I thought you were getting an L. So this is a great W for your team, especially with all the injuries on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Pickett goes out. My man, Mitch Trubisky, don't write me off yet because I ain't writing back. Comes in, just moves the ball. There was a Chase Claypool sighting finally. Um... You know, good for Trubisky. Good, good for Trubisky for not for always staying ready. You know, you know, you, they always say, "Oh, as the backup, I stay ready." But this was the guy who was the starter, got benched for the rookie. Rookie gets hurt, has to come back in, and it wasn't like they were winning and he had to, like to hold the lead. Like he drove down the field and won the game and even put points on the board. So, uh, good for Trubisky. Um, bad, bad loss for Tampa Bay. Um, you know, I just. Is I I did not expect this in the slightest in the slightest this this week at all. Just when you want to write the Pittsburgh Steelers off, and I'll preface this by saying I still kind of do want to write the Pittsburgh Steelers off. But just when you want to write the Pittsburgh Steelers off, you look up after this game, a game that very few people picked them to win. I did not pick them to win, and all of a sudden you realize the Steelers are one game out of first place. That that's, says a lot about a lot of teams at the same time when you think about what's happening in this division. The Steelers should be dead in the water right now. That's, that's the bottom line with the way their season's gone, uh, with the injuries they've had to seemingly every key player, certainly on the defensive side of the ball. And yet somehow, someway, the Steelers are just hanging around. And, you know, when you have Mike Tomlin, this, this is the kind of team that, if you don't put them away, and this team should I, mean, I know six games of the season, this team should already be put away. You don't put them away, Ravens. You don't put them away, Bengals. What's going to happen if Pittsburgh just finds a way to hang around? <laughs> that, that, that's what I learned this week. Like, Don't count Pittsburgh out yet, even though I'm not saying they're going to have a good season. What I'm saying is that all of a sudden, Winning nine games suddenly looks like enough to win this division, mate. And could Pittsburgh pull that off miraculously? Maybe. It just it depends. But it's just shocking for me to, to think about the fact that the Steelers are actually still in contention somehow. Mitchell Trubisky, I felt like we saw a whole different mental approach to this game from Mitchell Trubisky. Going to the beginning of the season, everybody knew 
It was no secret. Everybody knew it. Even though Tomlin said I'd, I'd like Pickett to sit for the entire year. Everybody knew we were just counting down the clock. The first time Mitchell Trubisky threw a bad pass, everybody was going to say, where's Kenny Pickett? Get Kenny Pickett in the game. Your hometown fans are rooting against you because they want the Pittsburgh product to go and take the job. And you're, you're constantly looking over your shoulder with every throw. Now, this time Trubisky comes to the game, Pickett's knocked out. So now you're not looking over your shoulder. Now you're not thinking every time you throw a bad pass that you might get pulled from the game. And you saw a guy that for the first time all season looked comfortable as a Pittsburgh Steeler. That, to me, was the biggest difference in the game. I talked for several weeks about how Trubisky just didn't have enough aggression. He wasn't trying to make plays down the field. The offense looked the same way it looked with Ben Roethlisberger's arm falling off. In this game, and I'm not trying to act like Trubisky looked like the greatest quarterback in history, but in this game, Trubisky was eager to get the ball downfield, eager to take advantage of Claypool's big playability. Just give the man a chance. Claypool made some great catches in this game. You give him a chance, and good things happen. But Trubisky was willing to make throws that he has not been willing to make all year. And when the game came down to it, when the Buccaneers needed to get the ball back, there were multiple third and over 10 situations that Trubisky converted just because he was being aggressive. This is the Trubisky that we thought we could see after he had to sit in Buffalo and see what a good offense actually looked like. I don't know how long he can keep it up. I don't know because with concussions, you just never know. You might not ever see Trubisky in a Steeler uniform besides being on the bench. But at least for one moment, he showed that, yeah, when he plays loose, he can actually be a decent to solid quarterback. Now, what if I told you, despite the fact that T.J. Watt got injured in the first game, unfortunately, and, you know, of course, is still working his way back. What if I told you the Steelers still have the NFL's leader in sacks? Alex Highsmith is up to six and a half sacks after getting one on Brady in this game. And Alex Highsmith deserves extra credit. He should get an extra sack because he got a sack on Brady without getting a roughing in the passer call. That's a miracle in itself. So give Alex Highsmith a ton of credit. But this guy is certainly coming into his own. And now all of a sudden, if Alex Highsmith can keep this form up and they can get T.J. Watt back, now you've got arguably the nastiest pass rush duo in the league. And that's saying something when you consider what's going on in Dallas. So I'm curious to see if Highsmith can keep it up. I was high on Highsmith, no, no pun intended there, coming out of Charlotte, and he's starting to come into his own. The six and a half sacks that Highsmith has right now is already his career high. This is his third season. So he's somebody to keep your eye on because, you know, we know the Steelers can produce pass rushes. We know that can happen. So if they can keep him going, that's something that's going to be big time. As for Tom Brady, again, like, like Patrick said, even after Tom Brady led the league in passing last year, I said anybody could lead the league in passing if they throw the ball that much more than everybody else is throwing it. I still saw the decline. Patrick saw some of the decline. And when you look this year, Tom Brady, with a pretty good supporting cast, I mean, I know he doesn't have Gronk, but he still has a pretty good supporting cast. I know Antonio Brown's not there, but it's still a pretty strong supporting cast. Tom Brady right now is averaging 6.7 6 yards per throw this year. 
That would be the third lowest average in Tom Brady's career. Now, we're talking over 20 years. That'd be his third lowest, which means he's been better on a per-pass basis 17 times in his career than he is right now. And when he has, when he's been that low before, one was like his second year as the starter, and the other was his last year in New England when he was throwing to absolutely nobody. He's not throwing to absolutely nobody right now, but he is—he knows his limitations right now. Case in point: over the last two weeks, Leonard Fournette and Rashad White, those are both running backs, they've combined for 25 targets in the last two weeks. Check down Tom is becoming a major thing. And again, it just goes to show how that, that, that arm is starting to lose some MPH on that fastball, as they like to say. You're missing what you had in the interior of that offensive line. You're fine at tackle, but the inside of that line, and again, you're Tom Brady, you're not going anywhere. So if the pressure is coming from the interior, that's going to affect you way more than the pressure coming from the outside. Tom Brady right now, if you know why he was yelling at his offensive line? Because he misses Ryan Jensen. He wishes Ali Marpet would come out of retirement like he did. And he would take Alex Kappa back. And I don't know, Alex Kappa's on that Cincinnati offensive line that everybody hates. But Alex Kappa's a good player. Brady misses all those guys. That's why he was yelling at his offensive line. <laughs> so when you look at that problem for Tampa Bay, it's not like it's going to get fixed. Jensen may have an outside shot of getting back at the very end of the season. Marpet's chilling. <laughs> he's, he's not coming out of retirement, I don't think. And uh, the Bengals aren't going to trade Kappa back, even though, again, people act like Joe Burrow doesn't have an offensive line. So what are you going to do? The, 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 the Buccaneers already did everything they could do. They made the trade to get Shaquille Mason. But other than that, uh, this team is pretty much stuck. Uh, Tampa Bay, the, the best thing they can say for their season right now is the team that was supposed to compete with them, New Orleans, has injury issues and you know, is off to a disappointing two and four start. So Tampa Bay might still be able to back their way to a division title here, but it's it's not looking good for the Buccaneers right now. This offense was supposed to be able to hold up their end of the bargain. The defense is. Defense has been pretty solid, to say the least. But this offense all of a sudden looks to be uh, pretty low ceiling offense, and that's saying something when you have Mike Evans and Chris Godwin on the team back and being healthy, and you have Leonard Fournette in that backfield for this offense to struggle to score 18 points against the Steelers defense that has been lit up without TJ Watt and with a banged up Minka Fitzpatrick. You can't do it against this team. That's saying a lot. So there's reason to be really, really concerned about the Buccaneers' offense moving forward. All right, next game we're going to talk about wasn't much of a game. Not surprisingly, and that is the Los Angeles Rams getting a almost get right game with a 24-10 easy win over the Carolina Panthers. Uh, Baker Mayfield didn't play in this game. And <laughs> much to the delight of many Panthers fans and others, others around the league who just don't like Baker Mayfield, don't like his face, don't like anything about him. Hate him. <laughs> But the Panthers' offense generated three points in this game. Now, it's, it's fun to sit here and say, get Baker Mayfield out of here, this and that. What are your other options? 
You get P.J. Walker and Jacob Easton in this game. Enjoy. Enjoy. When you think it can't get worse than Baker Mayfield, it can't. And unfortunately for the Panthers, for the last couple of years, they have not been able to do better than Baker Mayfield. And this is just another reminder of what they look like without him. And it's just, it, it's painful to watch. This is an offensive line that's not good, but it's certainly improving. You still have Christian McCaffrey, who's finally staying healthy. You have DJ Moore, one of the better receivers in the league, who can't show it. And yet you can't generate anything. You can't even look like a mediocre offense. It would take several steps in the right direction, several steps of improvement for this offense to hit mediocre. This, this is awful, what we're seeing from the Carolina Panthers. And, you know, the first game without Baker Mayfield, Bobby Anderson loses his mind, and the next thing you know, 10 minutes after the game, he's in Arizona car. I mean, that, that's where we are with this team. This is the ultimate level of dysfunction going on. And it's a shame because you look at the Panthers, they've got good players. They've got players they're not going to trade, even if they go into a mini fire sale mode. Ryan Burns, Eric Brown, J.C. Horn, I mean, they, they've got cornerstone-type pieces on the defensive side of the ball. And like I said, I already talked about D.J. Moore. Like, you've got pieces. My man, Ika McQuanda, NC State, doing his thing on that offensive line. There are pieces there, but the results just are horrendous. You know, and I continue to say quarterback is an overblown position as far as its importance, but you need competency there. And Carolina just cannot find competency at the quarterback position. And the fact that they're in a position where people are looking for Sam Donald to be the savior of all people, that speaks to just how sad it's gotten in Carolina. But this was a reminder of what your offense looks like when you can't blame Baker Mayfield. It looks just as bad if not worse, and I would say worse. Now, the offense, quote, offense from Carolina did come from Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford throws a perfect pass. He splits two Rams offensive players perfectly to hit Dante Jackson in stride for pick six. Matthew Stafford is now up to nine pick sixes since 2020. Aaron Rodgers has thrown four pick sixes since he came into the league. And he came into the league a long time ago. <laughs> 2005, to be exact. Matthew Stafford's got to stop throwing the ball to the other team. And you can sit there and say that there's, there's problems and this offense isn't perfect and they don't have the greatest weapons outside of Cooper Cup. But say whatever you want. That's not an excuse to keep throwing the ball to the other team. And certainly to not keep throwing the ball to the other team in positions where they can keep running it back for touchdowns. Matthew Stafford got to be better. And he can get away with it against Carolina. He can get away with it against a team that can't score without his help. But if the Rams want to make some noise, if the Rams want to do anything close to what they accomplished last year, Matthew Stafford has got to be a lot better than this. The other concern with the Rams moving forward is the offensive line. Joseph Noteboom got hurt in this game. He's the guy that they have thrown into the Andrew Whitworth spot. It hasn't gone well when he's been in there, but they don't have better options behind him. But he gets hurt. You've already been without Brian Allen, who you wanted to start at center. You've been without David Edwards, who's had multiple concussions this year at left guard. The entire left side of your line is out right now. You combine that with 
the whole Cam Akers situation, I have no clue. I'm not going to speculate what's going on there. So I'm not going to blow the whistle or anything on him because I don't know what it is. But you have a running back who you had big plans for. This is a running back that you were so eager to get back, you rushed him back within six months after tearing his Achilles. And that running back doesn't look like he's going to be a part of the team moving forward. You've got all kinds of turmoil, all kinds of unrest. They need a stabilizing presence on this Rams offense. As far as the Rams defense, we'll see what, what they've got going. I haven't been overly impressed with the Rams defense for most of the year. You can't grade them on this game because I can gather some friends from Henry Wise High School to shut down the Panthers offense these days. So we still have to see what this defense is going to bring to the table when they need to bring it as far as the Rams go. But this offense, there's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of uncertainty. And you really start to have to wonder about the Rams on a week-to-week basis. Again, good enough to beat Carolina. That's great. Everybody's good enough to beat Carolina right now. What's going to happen when the level of competition is better than Carolina? Because I can name about 30 other teams better than the Panthers right now. I think Julius must have had Baker Mayfield at his number one ranked quarterback in that draft class because he defends him like no one I've ever seen defend Baker Mayfield at this point in his career. Um, Yes, did anyone think the Panthers' offense would look better without Baker Mayfield? No, but we know what he is at this point in his career. I'm tired of people giving this man excuse after excuse after excuse. I got Ravens fans telling me to trade Lamar Jackson. You know who would love to have Lamar Jackson? The Browns, the Panthers. <laughs> 24 other teams in the NFL would love to have Lamar Jackson. Um, but I, I'm just tired of quarterbacks who just aren't good just getting passes because they were a number one pick or they fit the profile. That's that's you know the NFL's favorite word. They fit the profile of being a good quarterback. Um, you know... I don't think PJ Walker's better than Baker Mayfield. I don't think Sam Darnold's better than Baker Mayfield, but I just don't think the Panthers, this is why Rule got fired, bet on Baker Mayfield to make them a better team than what they are, and he's not going to do that. So, um, yeah, so the Panthers are where they're at. Uh, if they say that they're listening to trades for McCaffrey. That should be interesting leading up to the deadline. I hope they free my guy, DJ Moore. He a Terp. Um, I heard some rumblings in the rumor mills that um, he was getting looked at by the Chiefs. I would love to see DJ Moore in a Chiefs uniform. I think he would absolutely become wide receiver number one there in uh, two seconds. That's just how good of a route runner and hands he has. Um, but other than that, the Panthers might be the worst team in the NFL. Um, they look really, really bad. And their only touchdown came from Matthew Stafford. So, yeah, that's just how bad this team is. Moving on to the Rams, this offense did not impress me going up against a bad, bad team. I'm very happy that it looked like they were purposefully trying to get Allen Robinson involved, not with seven seconds left in the fourth quarter. Uh, They did still throw another stupid fade route, but he called it for a touchdown. That seems like the only route they run with this guy in the red zone. Um Allen Robinson with the Jags, Allen Robinson with the Bears is a much better receiver than just fade route in the in the red zone. Um, so I'm happy that he finally got some more looks uh, to you know that game. Um, it is interesting what's going to happen with the Panthers though. It's really interesting to see 
if they're going to do a fire sale and just completely start over with that organization and just kind of build just through the draft for the next three years. But um, have not been impressed with the Rams at all this year. I kind of called it in the preseason. I harp on it every week when they lose. I'll even do it in this win. Everyone's like, "Why well, did you have him ranked so low coming off of a Super Bowl win? Julius and I touched on this. Left tackle is a very important position in, the, in football. They lost one of the best of all time. So this is what's going to happen. Stafford also needs a line. I'm not saying he's Tom Brady statue in the in the pocket, but he needs he you you can't play quarterback in this league with anybody if you're getting hit and people are in the backfield at all times. So um, I'm not I'm not the same type of person that keeps saying the Bengals' offensive line is the reason why Joe Burrow hasn't looked good. Joe Burrow also stands there and holds onto the ball for ten seconds. I'm not saying that either, but. If you're getting a sack within two or three seconds of the ball being snapped, most quarterbacks aren't going to look good. Look at David Carr with the Texans when they were an expansion team. We have no idea if David Carr could have been a good quarterback in the NFL. Why? He was hit probably 105 times his rookie season. He was sacked the most ever. He's like the most sacked quarterback of all time. That guy played like three years in the NFL. So you never know that he could have been in the NFL just because of how how bad his offensive line was. So there's a difference between someone holding onto the ball for 10 seconds and being sacked, and now you're trying to blame on the offensive line versus the guy can't even do a three-step drop without getting hit. So, um, you know, I'm not impressed with the Rams. I'm not impressed with their defense either, Julius. They they have been a letdown to me. Um, you know, just, again, the Panthers aren't going to support, like, they let Atlanta hang around with them in that game against Atlanta. They let every team kind of, in all their wins, they've kind of let the teams hang around, right? And in all their losses, they've been pretty much blown out. So it, 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 it's not a good recipe for success. And if Odell Beckham does come back to that team, I'm expecting he is going to get a nice payday. Um, blowing the whistle on the Cam Akers situation. McVay, I saw a quote saying that he's going to sit until he's traded because he wants a fresh start and change of scenery. But then he also said... I'm not ruling out that he still might play for the Rams one day. You can't say you're going to sit someone for a change of scenery and a fresh start and then say, well, you know what? He may run for us still. Those are two conflicting ideologies. It makes no sense. Uh, So I'm blowing the whistle on Sean McVay. Um, Things aren't going the way the Rams thought they would go this year, and it looks like it's kind of uh, starting to boil up from within the organization. Uh, The offense hasn't looked great. Stafford's still turning it over. Um, they need something because you're losing one of your better playmakers in Cam Akers. Um, you don't have anybody besides Cooper Cup. Uh, like I said, Allen Robinson finally got involved this game. But it, if you're banking on Van Jefferson to come back and lead this team and spark this offense, I that's it's not going to be good days ahead for the Rams. Moving on to the Arizona-Seattle game. I'm not even going to get into analysis, Julius. I am blowing the whistle immediately on Cliff Kingsbury. You already know how I feel about him. This team has severely underperformed um, after giving Kyler Murray the bag. It, I, I don't even have words to express what's going on in Arizona. If I'm an Arizona fan, I'm pissed. Um, if they didn't escape with a win against Oakland, this team is 1-5 right now. Yeah. One in five. It's they should be one in five. 
Uh, yes, they should. Ky- oh. Kyler Murray had 100 yards rushing in this game and 222 yards passing. It was not good. Uh, Seattle's defense finally carried this team instead of the offense. Through the first five weeks, the offense has kind of been carrying this team to wins, and they got to take a nice little break this week because the defense did all the heavy lifting and got this W. Um, a new little segment I want to try out. It's going to be called Shout Out. So I'm shouting out Julius right now. Um, in our pre-draft analysis, post-draft analysis, I'm sorry for the NFL, um, we were going through picks and, you know, I was bringing up, you know, cornerbacks that I like that got taken in the later rounds, the guys that were like above 6'2 and just kind of fit this athletic profile that we both liked and were kind of from small schools that people didn't really know. Um, and, you know, I touched on it, but Julius gave him a shout out in the in the um, podcast because I did the team before and I shout out the other corner that got taken. So mm-hmm. Tariq Woolen. Mm-hmm. If I had to say who my defensive rookie of the year is right now, it's Tariq Woolen. Julius and I touched on this in our in our draft podcast, and we said, and especially like I said, Julius, because uh, he had the Seattle first, talked about how he f- is the athletic build of a corner in this day and age, and he has all the athletic tools. But can someone from the University of Texas San Antonio turn that into an NFL type of game? The answer is yes. This kid is balling. <laughs> you know, you gave a shout out to Kobe Bryant because of his name, you know, and he's also been having a good year. Mm-hmm. Um, Tariq Woolen leads the league in interceptions. He's tied for the league. Kobe Bryant leads the league in forced fumbles. So those two kids are balling in this secondary. And so I just want to give a shout out to Julius for uh, definitely calling this guy out for, for, um, how he could play in the NFL. I don't think either Julius or myself saw this coming from him in his rookie year, uh, but we definitely said with all these corners getting drafted in the later rounds, watch out for some of these guys. He was one of the ones we talked about, just 6'4", fast 40, just had all the athletic tools to get it done, but you don't always see athleticism turn over into a great player, but... So far, this kid is just balling out, and I just want to give him a shout-out because, uh, like I said, as of right now, this very moment, if you said pick a defensive rookie of the year, this kid is my defensive rookie of the year. Seattle is not 3-3 three and three without the way this kid's playing. Um, so Geno finally looked like Geno Smith in a game. He, he came back down to earth. <laughs> um, Kenneth Walker had a couple decent runs, but nothing, nothing you know, out of the ordinary. Um, the Seattle offense this game was just horrendous. They looked like the offense that we all thought they would have at the beginning of the season. Um, But this defense balled out this game. Arizona should be ashamed of themselves. They've looked terrible. I know DeAndre Hopkins is coming back, and everyone thinks the offense is going to change. It might be a little too late. Luckily, this division is terrible because um, you have have Seattle tied for the lead at 3-3 with the 49ers and the Rams, and then the Cardinals are 2-4. Normally, when you're two and four going into week six, you're three, four games behind. They're one game behind. So, um, you know, we'll see what the future holds. But the fact that Seattle's above Arizona through six weeks is telling. Yeah, I appreciate the shout out, Patrick. And I mean, I had to say, uh, I was high on the potential for Tariq Woolen, but I'd, I'd be lying if I said that I thought it would be this much impact this quickly. 
it's getting to the point where Tariq Woolen needs to be getting the kind of press, or at least starting to get the kind of press that Trayvon Diggs gets every time he gets the interception. And when you think about it, Tariq Woolen, like Trayvon Diggs, a converted wide receiver, these guys know how to track the ball and get their hands in position to catch it. Tariq Woolen's a net natural pass catcher playing corner. Tariq Woolen's got the speed. If you want to see how fast Tariq Woolen is, as crazy as it sounds, watch the Taysom Hill touchdown run last week against the Seahawks. When Taysom Hill was burning everybody, and Taysom Hill, don't, don't get it twisted just because he's white. <laughs> Taysom Hill can run. The guy that ran him down but couldn't bring him down was Tariq Woolen. <laughs> and he, brought, he, he caught up to him with ease. So you're talking about a guy who has all the physical tools, and you are seeing it translate from day one. I mean, he is making every team that passed on him look kind of stupid. <laughs> and and you know, we're talking about a fifth-round pick, so I'm not talking about necessarily the teams that pass on the, on the first or second round because, you know, you get that there's some doubt coming out, of, like you said, coming out of Texas-San Antonio. But third or fourth round, at some point, why aren't you taking a chance here? And he, he's playing like a guy who's saying, you know what, you thought I was a fifth-round kind of player? No problem. So, so was another famous Seattle corner, Richard Sherman. So, like, you want to pick me in the fifth round? That's fine. You watch what happens. And, you know, like I said with the Jets earlier, this is another team where you're starting to see the rookies take control and then set the tone. And Patrick said it. You've got playmakers in Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant. These guys are forcing turnovers left and right. And, like you said, Woolen leading the league in interceptions or tied for the league. Kobe Bryant leading the league in forced fumbles, Mamba mentality, I guess. And they were the two. When Kyler Murray broke out for his one long run, because Kyler Murray had a lot of nice runs, they had a long run late in this game. It was Kobe Bryant who stripped Kyler Murray and Tariq Woolen who came up with the fumble recovery. Like, these two are setting the tone. These two, I'm not going to call, call them the Legion of Boom because they're, they're not known as big strikers, but they're the Legion of Playmakers right now, if that's a thing. And you combine that with the fact that Seattle is starting to get contributions from Kenneth Walker the third on offense. And this is another team now that's heavily riding rookies to surprising results. I certainly would not have believed that Seattle would be three and three at this point at the start of the season. And here they are, not just at three and three, but again, another team that they're right there. <laughs> it's a team that I thought might be in contention for a top two or three pick. They're in contention for this division right now. We'll see how long it can last. I, I still need to see more out of this defense from the non-rookies. <laughs> but this team is right there in that division. With San Francisco flailing and dealing with their injuries, with L.A. trying to figure out what's going on with their offense and you know their offensive line and their backfield situation and all that, Seattle all of a sudden, they're the one team in this division where the arrow looks up. And that's that's something I definitely thought I wouldn't say in mid-October when the season started. Uh, as for the Cardinals, you know, you blew the whistle on Cliff Kingsbury. That's fitting. The Cardinals, hey, they scored three points in the first quarter this week. First three points they've scored in the first quarter all season. An offensive explosion for the Cardinals. This team cannot get off the mat. This team cannot get off the mat in the first half. I, I don't know what's going on with the offense to be that bad, but one thing I will say is what I'm seeing over the last couple of years is you might be able to, to 
manufacture catches for Marquise Brown. And let me take a moment to say, I hope Marquise Brown's okay. He suffered a foot injury in this game. We know he has a history of foot injuries going back to the end of his college career. Hopefully he'll be all right, but he's gonna, he looks like he's going to miss at least several weeks. Going back to last year, we are seeing when Marquise Brown is your number one wide receiver, your offense is limited. That, that's just the reality. Marquise Brown is a complimentary piece. When you miscast him as a number one, you can get him a lot of catches because, again, you can manufacture screens and quick passes to get his reception numbers up. But for somebody with as much explosiveness as Marquise Brown, look at the yards per catch. It's not there. It's not there because you're manufacturing catches, but this guy is not the guy. He's the one who Tariq Woolen got the interception on the end of the game. Why? Because he's not going to, Marquise Brown is not going to beat Tariq Woolen for any football if it's a contested catch situation. So Arizona needs DeAndre Hopkins badly. It's a shame that they're this reliant on DeAndre Hopkins. This is a team, when you look around, they spent a high draft pick on Andy Isabella, who's no longer on the team. They spent a high draft pick on um, Rondell Moore. You brought in A.J. Green to be a veteran leader, and none of these guys can contribute at all. I mean, this offense has just, just filtered down to just being Marquise Brown on screens and gadget plays. And as a result, Kyler Murray is having his least efficient season by far. It's not even close. And this Cardinals offense doesn't scare anybody. The only touchdown that they scored in this game was on a punt sack, for lack of a better term. They didn't even get, the guy didn't even try to punt the ball for Seattle. He just stood there, got sacked, and fumbled. That was this, the Arizona touchdown. So this offense literally generated nothing. And when you look at the Seahawks defense overall going into this season, again, we've given major props to Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant, but this defense overall has been terrible. This defense overall has been torched for most of the season. And you couldn't get a single thing going against that defense. That says a lot about your offense. It says a lot about Cliff Kingsbury because, again, Kyler Murray is his guy. He's the guy that Kyler Murray was uh, that uh, Kyler Murray is the guy that Cliff Kingsbury was dreaming about since Kyler Murray was in high school. You got him. You can't figure out how to make this offense work with him. And lastly, I'm blowing the whistle, re-blowing the whistle. This is our, I believe this is our first time re-blowing the whistle on whoever in the Arizona Cardinals organization is responsible for continuing to bring back Matt Amendola. This man blew a game for the Chiefs. The Chiefs were smart. They said, you know what? You won't blow another one. Even if our kicker is still hurt, you won't be the backup anymore. He comes to Arizona, blows the game for them. Against the Eagles. Arizona could be the one team that beat the Eagles this year, if not for Matt Amendola. You have Justin Pugh actively, publicly defending Matt Amendola, and he should do that as a teammate. He's not making the front office decisions, but you still brought Matt Amendola back this week. You had the opportunity to kick a field goal inside the 25-yard line. You didn't attempt the field goal because you have Matt Amendola. If he's not going to do it, if he's not going to be able to make that kick, why in the world is he on the roster? So instead, you have to go for a fourth down there, and Kyler Murray ends up throwing an interception in the end zone. And oh, by the way, Matt Amendola missed an extra point in this game on the one touchdown you scored, which wasn't even an offensive touchdown. Get rid of Matt Amendola. I don't care who you end up signing. Sign Ocho Cinco to kick your field goals. Do whatever it takes. 
Matt Amendola cannot be on this roster next week. Stop playing games, or I'm going to keep blowing the whistle on you every single week. All right, next game we're going to talk about is the game that was certainly by far the most anticipated game of the week. The Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Bills come away from Arrowhead Stadium with a 24-20 win. Uh, this time, it's the Bills who are able to get that last score and the Bills who are also able to get that last stop. Uh, this game certainly didn't start off living up to expectations, but you see uh, Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes matched up. Yeah, You feel like you're watching arguably the two best quarterbacks in football. And so you're expecting kind of the high scoring back and forth. And certainly after last year's playoff game, I think people were kind of thinking or hoping for kind of a 49-42 kind of game. But both teams started off with turnovers in the red zone. Uh, a botched play on a silly call. I mean, Buffalo was going right down the field the first drive. I wasn't sure why they felt the need to run some weird shovel pitch to Isaiah McKenzie, but it was a play that he clearly wasn't ready for, and so it was a gift turnover uh, given to the Chiefs there. That's off of a stupid play call. Uh, on the Kansas City side, they decided to get bold, go for a fourth down. Patrick Mahomes tries to make a play, and Patrick's guy, Kair Elam, coming through with a crucial interception to start the game off and get the Bills back on track to match turnover for turnover to start the game. Certainly not the way you thought this game would start off. But um, as this game went along, you uh, started to see why these teams are considered two of the most dangerous teams in the AFC. Uh, Isaiah McKenzie had a rough game this one. He, he really did. And I talked about how he just wasn't ready for the pitch to start the game off. And I just, again, don't know why that play was even called. Uh, and Isaiah McKenzie also should have caught a touchdown in this game. And he just stumbled for no reason just tangled his feet and went down uh certainly made sports center not top 10 with the way he fell down and couldn't catch a ball on a wide open play but uh you know credit to josh allen for overcoming that for doing what he had to do both through the air and on the ground to win this game or in the air while running <laughs> to to win this game um that chief secondary uh, continues to be a concern. There's a lot of youth in that secondary. And every time you look up, it seems like uh, some of that youth is injured or banged up. And so now more youth has to come in. Uh, Joshua Williams, a rookie out of Fayetteville State, a versatile defensive back out of Fayetteville State, had to step into this game and try his best for whatever reason. Uh, Williams was left in one-on-one -on -one situations with Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis at different points in the game. Josh Allen exploited that, perfect passes, uh, put a couple of touchdowns right on Joshua Williams. The, the Chiefs didn't figure out how to hide him in coverage. Uh, the Bills took advantage, and that was a huge difference in this game. Uh, then, of course, Josh Allen with a perfect throw to Dawson Knox to win this game. So there, there were some plays that Josh Allen made that were just absolutely incredible. Uh, Mahomes made some incredible throws in this game as well. A couple of them were called back, but... Uh, Patrick Mahomes certainly held up his end of the bargain for most of the game. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, I'll give him a shout-out. Uh, he's somebody who I had big expectations uh, and hopes for going into this offense. Uh, Smith-Schuster hasn't been heard from in a few years. Uh, a lot of that is injury. Some of that is playing with Roethlisberger when, again, Roethlisberger just didn't have anything left in the tank. I thought we'd see a resurgent year from Smith-Schuster. 
We hadn't seen any of that to this point. Uh, to this game was the first time in years where you saw Juju Smith-Schuster making big plays. A lot of it was poor Bills tackling on his touchdown uh, catch and run. But, you know, those are the plays that Smith-Schuster made when he put his name on the map years ago early in his Pittsburgh career. So it was good to see Smith-Schuster get back in the fold. They need him to keep it up because they just don't have another receiver who has that high of a ceiling. Uh, Marquez Valdez-Scanling is supposed to be the number two receiver. He was the one who Kyrie Elam took the interception from in the end zone. He's, he's Valdez-Scanling, he played a little bit at NC State, so I give him half credit. But he is not he's not really a number two wide receiver. He is a situational deep threat at best. And, you know, the Chiefs have to ask him to be more because they just don't have the depth at the position right now. Uh, Von Miller needs to be talked about in this game. The Kansas City Chiefs have had good offensive line play all year. So uh, this is not me. This is not the Joe Burrow, uh, you know, nobody can block on this line type situation. That's not me complaining or about the Chiefs offensive line, but it's just noting that Andrew Wiley, the right tackle, had no chance against Von Miller all, all day. Von Miller was in the backfield constantly. Von Miller was in the backfield on the last interception that Mahomes threw. Uh, that, you know, that's certain stuff that's not going to show up in the stat sheet. Von Miller had a couple of sacks in this game, so he does show up in the stat sheet, but his biggest play was forcing Mahomes to get rid of that last pass early, uh, allowing uh, Johnson to come in and make an interception to end the game. But Von Miller was uh, outside of what Josh Allen did in this game, Von Miller was the runner-up MVP, so to speak, of this game with the way he played. Uh, we've talked about how the Bills don't have offensive balance necessarily, and in, in, in this game, they they turned it around to some degree. Now, they're still very Josh Allen-centric, but Devin Singletary did get a season-high 17 carries in this game and responded with a season-high 85 yards. It was the Chiefs in this game that didn't run the ball. Uh, Singletary had more rushing attempts than Clyde Edwards-Elair, Jarek McKinnon, and Isaiah Pacheco combined. So Kansas City may have to revisit that at some point, especially in a, in a game where their passing game was pretty good, but not, not the A-plus type stuff. It was a, like an A-minus, B-plus type of passing day for the Chiefs, and maybe they should have sprinkled in a little more of the run, even though the Bills do have... A, uh, an imposing front, so maybe that affected the play calling, but the Chiefs were the most balanced offense in this game, and that was a bit of a surprise for me. Uh, last but not least, I'm blowing the whistle on the referee who missed the flagrant, flagrant tripping by Chris Jones on Josh Allen. I don't know how that's missed. I don't know how Josh Allen doesn't get the benefit of the doubt there, and you know, this is the same Chris Jones who, when he, when he gets a perfectly executed sack on Derek Carr, you call roughing the passer when there's literally nothing this man could do other than defy physics to avoid the play that he made, barely falling on Derek Carr. You don't call that. Then you come back a week later and don't call this man tripping Josh Allen and then getting up and putting his hands up. The universal sign of guilt. He told you he did it afterwards. You could have thrown a retroactive flag. It's not like you haven't done that before for roughing the passer. So blowing the whistle on the refs, you got to see that call, especially for a star quarterback. Whoever that referee was, you might not get to referee another big game this year because you got to be able to protect Josh Allen better than that. I think the Bills must have been listening to the podcast. I've been asking for running from someone other than Josh Allen, and they finally let someone touch the ball. Um, 
I'm with you. Uh, I feel like the Chiefs were trying to prove a point, like that we're going to throw it on this defense and prove that we can do that because all year they've been a balanced team. And I'm not saying that they – Patrick Mahomes leads this team. Anyone who thinks that he doesn't, he does. But they've at least had Clyde Edward-Hilaire running. They've had Pacheco running. They've had McKinnon doing – I mean, there's not they're not runs with McKinnon, but like – even the little flat passes for like two or three yards, that's essentially a run, right? Like, so the fact that they weren't really doing that this game, I felt like they were trying to prove a point with their offense, which is unlike the Chiefs, I feel like. But that's kind of just kind of watching it. It felt like we're going to prove we can beat you in there because normally they have a better balanced attack than what they did. I was shocked that the Bills had more of the balanced attack. Um, shout out to Stefan Diggs. He a Terp. Another huge, huge game. Um, anyone who doesn't think he's a top five receiver is is insane. I think he's proved. I think he proved that with the Vikings. And then as soon as he was like, "I gotta get away from Kirk Cousins because I'm better than I'm better than what I'm even showing you," and he has shown that he has lived up to everything he said he would do leaving the Vikings. Um, I know people are like, "Well, the Vikings got Justin Jefferson in that trade." It, they did, and and Justin Jefferson is a, is a beast, but. Stefan Diggs was also your fifth round pick that you should have groomed because he should have gone in the first round if he didn't play for such crappy quarterbacks in Maryland. So, and that's why I think DJ Moore went in the first round. They're like, we're not making this mistake again. Um, but uh, this was a good game. It was a slow start. Um, I'm hoping this is the AFC championship game. I want to see this game again. Um, you know, it was very uncharacteristic of Patrick Mahomes making some of the throws that he made, um, especially that last one. Um, but as you said, if anyone was watching the game, Von Miller got the initial, you know, heat on Patrick Mahomes, which made him roll. But Milano was also spying him. So he was rolling away from Von Miller right into the spy. And he just threw it, and it was a pick. And it was just, you know, bad play all the way around for, for Mahomes. But um, that play, Von Miller definitely got the pressure on him to make him scramble out into the spy. So it was just people didn't know Von Miller was worth the contract. And even if he doesn't play as well after this year as he's playing this year, if they win a Super Bowl or have a deep, deep playoff run, he is worth every penny of that contract because – the pressure he's been putting on opposing offenses has made this defense even better than what they were last year. Um, yeah, so I'm excited for this for this game. I think we're going to see it again in the playoffs. Um, again, you got Patrick Mahomes, the best quarterback in the league. Josh Allen, arguably the second best quarterback in the league, and it's always fun to have these matchups. Moving on to the Sunday night game, the Dallas Cowboys versus the Philadelphia Eagles, who... Someone on this podcast called the best team in the NFC before the season even started. I'm not one of these bandwagon ESPN, Fox News analysts that don't know nothing. Before the games have even been played, I called this preseason best team in the NFC, the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, not Jalen Hurts' best game, but what I did like about this game is that they won kind of ugly, right? Like, you need wins like this when you're building a Super Bowl run for a team because there's a lot of games and, and moments and seasons where you're like, the team needed this ugly win to understand that they can win close games, right? 
So the game started off with Philly just dominating both sides of the ball. Um, they've done it all year where they are really hot in the first half and then just come out in the second half and look flat. Um, but, you know, the defense stepped up when it needed to, and then the run game took over. They had a they had one drive in this game, Julius, when they went like 17 plays, eight minutes, and that is a championship type of team. If you can take eight minutes off in a quarter and get a touchdown or get points, those are the type of drives that will win you games in January. Um, just to be able to hold the ball that long. Uh, Cooper Rush finally looked like a backup quarterback and not one that has been hiding behind the defense and, and the run game. Um, I know a lot of people, and I was kind of trolling some Dallas fans, uh, were, were excited to see Micah Parsons fail uh, in coverage at least. Um, I do think it is a concern for Dallas's defense because they really weren't making any adjustments in the first half when they were doing those little rub routes to get their tight end and to get their receivers on Micah Parsons. I think Dallas needs to be better about adjusting, and they did in the second half, and that's why Philly got stifled in the second half because Dan Quinn came out and made halftime adjustments. Um, and I think moving forward, you won't see as many Micah Parsons trying to run out to the flat and cover people off of a rub route. Um, also, Micah Parsons has that groin injury or whatever's going on with his leg that he shouldn't be trying to you know, cover anyway. So, um, But I'm happy we don't have to hear about Cooper Rush should be the starting quarterback anymore. I think this game proved he shouldn't be the starting quarterback. Um, did he make some nice throws and did he make some plays to get them back into the game? Yes. Uh, but at the end of the day, you probably have a better chance of winning this game if you had Dak Prescott back there. Um, and the turnovers definitely did not help Dallas in the first half with Cooper Rush throwing those, those interceptions. So, um, you know, Dallas looks like they have one of the best defenses in the league, though. And, and that will be a benefit to them moving forward, even when Dak comes back or if Cooper stays a quarterback. Your offense doesn't have to do much when your defense can stop the other team from scoring. Um, the problem is that Dallas just got themselves in too big of a hole in this game to, to be able to mount a big enough comeback with who they have leading the offense. Um, shout out to, to James Bradbury and Darius Slay. They look like one of the top cornerback tandems in the league. I know Bradbury started giving up some plays in the second half, but, I mean, that's going to happen in an NFL game. If, if you get thrown at enough, you will give up a catch here and there, so it just happens. Um, but that looks like a real big signing for them, and the offseason was the Bradbury pickup. It's really solidified that that secondary for them. Um, and, yeah, this, this was just a good – you know, this was an NFC East type game. You know, just it was kind of ugly, and 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 they grinded out a win, and they're six and zero. Cowboys fall to four and two. Um, you know, so we'll see what the rest of the season holds out. But Philly's the only unbeaten team in the NFL still, and and as long as they keep winning, you can't really be mad at the results of what's happening. For a good while, this game was looking like the Eagles were going to make the statement of all statements. I mean, when you look around the NFC. And, you know, Patrick talks about how the Eagles were his favorite going in. And you look around at the other teams in the NFC that were in that conversation. Packers don't look good. Buccaneers don't look good. Rams don't look good. You know, 49ers are banged up. 
it's wide open for the Eagles. And the one team that's kind of standing there that looks arguably as good or close to as good as the Eagles is the Cowboys. And this game looked like the Eagles were going to send a message and, you know, as much of a message as you can send with Cooper Rush starting, but send a message saying that, hey, you guys think you're close to us? Nobody is. And then Lane Johnson got hurt. We've seen this with the Eagles for the last five years. When Lane Johnson is in that lineup, this team is tough to beat. When Lane Johnson's not in that lineup, I mean, the, the same way we talk about Andrew Whitworth, Lane Johnson, even though he plays right tackle instead of left, Lane Johnson has that Andrew Whitworth effect. He means everything to that team. We can talk about Hurts and how he's off to a red-hot start. You can talk about the running game. You can talk about how deep that defensive line is. You can talk about how deep that secondary is. Lane Johnson is the difference. He's what puts them over the top. And when he got hurt, all of a sudden, the Eagles offense stalled, and all of a sudden, the defense started being out on the field more, and all of a sudden, the Cowboys started finding a little rhythm, and a game that looked like it was going to be a blowout had some doubt of it going down the stretch. Uh, so that's something to keep an eye on moving forward. Again, another concussion situation. So you just you can't predict these things. I can't sit here and tell you Lane Johnson is going to be back next week or not. It's just something to keep an eye on moving forward. And you know, as we've talked about with some other players, uh, with Tua being one of them. Again, I talked about uh, the Rams' offensive lineman Dave, David Edwards. You know, when you start talking about multiple concussions, that's when you really start to get concerned. So you just you can't say what's going to happen moving forward. But the Eagles need Lane Johnson. That that is my point here. As good as this team is, a last undefeated team, uh, there's no team in their schedule coming up that looks like on paper that they're going to challenge the Eagles. Uh, this, this is a good time for the Eagles to uh, be cruising into a bye week. So they, they get some time there. But uh, moving forward, this is something to keep an eye on Lane Johnson's status. Uh, I just wanted to give this Cowboys pass rush its props, and, and specifically Dorrance Armstrong. It's it's easy to lose sight of him. You have Micah Parsons, who is trying to be in the running for Defensive Player of the Year. You know, of course, you have Demarcus Lawrence, who's one of the absolute best defensive linemen in the league. Dorrance Armstrong is starting to stand out in this pass rush, and, it, and just when you add all of this together, then you even throw in a little extra from Dante Fowler Jr., who has certainly had. Uh, success as a pass rusher under Dan Quinn elsewhere. When you combine all this together, that pass rush, that front is going to keep Dallas in games that they don't have any business being in. Because Cooper Rush was terrible in this game. Let me, let me just say that. He might have had a couple of nice throws here and there to some of the tight ends. But overall, and this is what I was saying before, going back to what I said earlier in the show about Bailey Zappi, let's see what these guys look like after start six, seven, you know, when you start getting more and more of a sample size, you know, you want to get all excited because Cooper Rush, oh, look at him, he's 2-0, and oh, look at him, he's 3-0, and oh, look at him, he's 4-0. and oh. At the end of the day, at some point, you play these guys long enough, you start to understand why they're a backup, you know, especially somebody like Cooper Rush. At least Zappi's a rookie. You might say, oh, maybe there's some upside there. Cooper Rush has been around for a little while. He's a backup for a reason. This whole, thing, oh, is there going to be a quarterback controversy or if the Cowboys don't want to keep him somebody? No, no, some, no not somebody else. He's going to stay with Dallas because he's right where he belongs, on the bench behind Dak Prescott. And, and order will be restored as soon as Prescott's thumb is healthy enough. As early as next week, order will be restored. But even with Rush being somewhat careless with the football, and I, I said this last week, he was careless with the football against Washington. It's just that every time he threw an interception, the penalty was thrown. 
Now, you know, you have those same plays without penalties, and now it shows up on the stat sheet. But uh, the other aspects of Dallas's game was there. You know, like I said, that pass rush was there. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott, he looked – this is the best I've seen Ezekiel Elliott look probably in about three years. Uh, he, he looked spry in the touchdown run. He was able to make a safety miss in the hole. It was a terrible angle in the hole, but Zeke still made a miss. And, you know, the Zeke last couple of years was just ran at that safety and gone down. Uh, so it was nice to see him run away from somebody and get to the end zone. Uh, Elliott had a season high 81 yards in this game on his second lowest number of rushing attempts this game. So he was very efficient in his opportunities in this game. And, you know, we'll see if he can keep that up. If he does, with Prescott getting back, then all of a sudden you start feeling a lot better as a rational Cowboys fan. For the six rational Cowboys fans that are out there, you start feeling better about what your team looks like if Elliott can keep this up. The number one thing to look at with the Philadelphia Eagles is this. The Philadelphia Eagles lead the league in takeaways. The Philadelphia Eagles lead the league in fewest giveaways. If you're number one in those two categories, you're probably going to be the best team. The Eagles are plus 12 in turnover differential. So per game, they're taking the ball away from you two times more than you are from them per game. Their, their turnover differential is eight better than anybody else in the league. They are plus 12. Nobody else is better than plus four. If you want to know why the Eagles are the number one team in the league right now, if you want to know why they're the last undefeated team, you don't have to go any farther than that. When you are that much ahead of your opponents every week in turnover margin, you almost can't lose. And in this game, of course, you had Chauncey Gardner-Johnson playing the most important position in football safety, come up with two key interceptions in this game. When you're doing that on a regular basis, you give yourself a margin of error. You give yourself enough margin of error to say, you know what, Jalen Hurts, you don't have to have your best game tonight. We can still win this game against the number two team in the conference at the time because we're just going to take the ball. We're going to create short fields. We're going to take away opportunities from this, for them to score. So if the Eagles keep up, I mean, and I don't think you can keep this pace up the rest of the year. You, you're not going to be plus 40. I mean, that's about what the, the Eagles are on pace for if they keep this up. They're not going to do this. But if the Eagles finish the year at plus 20, plus 25 in the turnover margin, they're going to be the number one team in the East. I mean, excuse me, in the NFC. Forget the East. They're going to be number one team in the NFC if they can keep anything close to this turnover margin up. And last but not least, we have our live reaction segment. Uh, the game just wrapped up. An overtime game that saw the Los Angeles Chargers somehow, someway pull out a 19-16 win over the Denver Broncos. This is just another step in a disappointing season for the Broncos. This was another game uh, that was well within reach. And they just can't find ways to win these games. And I say this all the time. You know, it's not that good teams blow teams out every week. It's not that bad teams get blown out every week. Good teams will find a way to win those close games that they probably shouldn't win. Bad teams will figure out a way to take a 50-50 game and turn it into a loss every time. And the Broncos are starting to fall into that latter category. 
it's amazing to me that this team can have these possessions where they look so good. Earlier in, in, the, in this game, Russell Wilson had a real nice throw to Jerry Judy, nice catch and run for almost 40 yards, and then a real nice touchdown pass to Greg Dolchich, and then the Broncos have been looking for a tight end all year. It was supposed to be Albert Aquabanam that was going to have the breakout season, but uh, they just haven't used their tight ends at all. And here comes Dolchich finally making his NFL debut after spending time on the injured list. He comes through, catches a nice long touchdown wide open, and you're thinking, okay, the Broncos' offense is opened up. You see Russell Wilson scrambling more, picking up first downs with his legs. You're thinking, okay, this looks like the type of Denver Bronco team that certainly I thought we'd see and many others thought we would see going into the season. And then it just goes away. It goes back to being stale. It goes back to basic draw plays. It goes back to Russell Wilson not being willing to use his mobility. It goes back to throwing passes that are low percentage passes in contested situations where you're not putting the ball in spots where the receiver has an advantage to catch it. I, I, don't, I don't know why that happens. I don't know why this team shows glimpses of an excellent offense and then it just disappears. What I will say is this team misses Garrett Bowles. This team certainly misses Javante Williams. Without Javante Williams, this team does not have a tone setter on offense. And that's rearing its ugly head, even in a game where you should, even without Williams, be able to establish the run against the Chargers defense the way they've defended the run for it seems like every year for the last several years. So for them to not take advantage of that, terrible. And, you know, just like we talked about with um, the Bears and how they keep losing games on muffed punts, this game comes down to a muffed punt, a muffed punt where a blocker can't get out of the way and the returner can't find a way to field the ball that hits him pretty much in his abdomen. It's, it's just, but again, the, these are the, these are things that happen to bad teams. The Chargers did not play well in this game, uh, and yet they come away with a win. Uh, the one thing I'll say about the Chargers is their kicker, Dustin Hopkins, and Commanders fans, I'm sure you remember him, Dustin Hopkins, with an injured quad or whatever was going on with his leg, an injured kicking leg, a kicking leg that hurt so much that when he tried to kick the ball, he couldn't stay on his feet. It's still better than Matt Amendola. Cardinals, find a kicker who can kick. It, it, it shouldn't be this difficult. At least try at least try a different one. Stop failing with the same one when you got other kickers out here who can kick with half a leg. And... uh I will say, I wasn't sure, I don't want to steal all the Patrick Thunder here, but uh, there was certainly an opportunity for uh, the, the Chargers to uh, have a have a nice start to the fourth quarter here, and they decided to go for a fourth down in field goal range and didn't get it. <laughs> and I, I know, you know Patrick's favorite coach, for those who don't know, is, is Brandon Staley, so I'm, I'm sure he approved of, of that coaching decision. Um, Last thing to say about the Chargers, and I say it every week, so I'm just going to continue to say it. Good things happen when Austin Eckler touches the ball. Uh, He scores a touchdown in this game. uh, It's about a six-yard run where he drags defenders into the end zone. It doesn't matter how short Austin Eckler is. He is one of the more physical runners in the game when he gets the opportunity. You give him the ball, and especially, again, especially while Keenan Allen's out. I'm not sure how bad that hamstring issue is, but it seems like he's been out forever. but, yeah, you give Eckler the ball, especially when you're not at full strength on offense. Let him do his thing, and, you know, you find a way to win games. But, 
you know, all in all, this was more about the Broncos blowing an opportunity than anything brilliant the Chargers did. Uh, but if you're the Chargers, say it's a must-needed win. You take advantage of Kansas City's loss yesterday, and now the Chargers are all of a sudden right back in the division race. All right, yeah. So moving on to this Monday night game, uh, my first live reaction just digesting this game right now is Nathaniel Hackett needs to be fired. I, I'm blowing the whistle on hiring coaches that are making a name off themselves off of great players because – We've seen a lot of guys get hired this this offseason. And don't get me wrong, the Vikings are 5-1, and one, so at least he's a competent head coach. But that offense does not look anything like the offense that he quote-unquote oversaw, right? Nathaniel Hackett got a name off of Aaron Rodgers and, and Devontae Adams, and look what, look what he's doing with the Broncos. That offense looks terrible. It's Russell Wilson's worst start for anything in his career. His worst... Record through week six, and he was on some bad Seattle teams near the end. And his worst record, his worst completion percentage, his lowest amount of touchdowns. So, either Russell Wilson is in full decline and he's going to retire next year because he's just that bad now, or it's the offensive system. Um, I just don't understand. Um, you know, the Chargers didn't even play a good game, like you said. It, they had to win by a field goal kicker who was kicking on one leg. He literally kicked the ball and fell to the ground. So I just don't, I just don't understand Herbert. I'm over the Justin Herbert hype. I know people want him to be the next great quarterback, just like they're pushing Josh Allen to be. There were so many throws that that Herbert missed in this game. You know, Gerald Everett was running open on a lot of throws. Uh, and they were talking about this with Justin Fields on the Thursday night game. When you have a step on a corner in the NFL, that means you're open. If your body is in front of a corner in the NFL, that means you're open. You can't wait for your guy to run open in the NFL, right? That's what they always say about college quarterbacks coming into the NFL. Guys in college are a lot more open than they are in the NFL. And the windows need to be smaller. So Herbert threw it 57 times, just for context, for... 238 yards. That is awful. Matt Ryan threw it 58 times and had like 385 yards. Just to give you context in, Matt Ryan does not have as good as weapons as Justin Herbert. Let's just make that clear. Um, But I, I, I'm with Julius on this one. Austin Eckler is the heart and soul of his team on offense. When he's gotten the ball, they're on a three-game win streak. When they weren't giving him the ball, they went one and two. So um, hopefully Los Angeles starts to realize uh, that that is the guy they need to get involved because that's how they're winning games. Moving on over to Denver. um, Two and four, very disappointing. Uh, I feel bad for their defense once again, who played uh, once again. Did not give up 20 points and lost the game. The Chargers got a touchdown early in this game, in the second quarter. For the rest of the game, all they were given were field goals. So the defense for the Broncos is not losing for this team. It's the offense. 
The offense is terrible. So, I mean, if you want to pick one play that lost this game for the Broncos, you can say it was the punt, the muff punt, because that gave the Chargers, you know, the ball to kick the field goal to win. But they shouldn't even been in overtime. This shouldn't even been a play that should have been happening. It, their offense has just been so, so bad this year. Um, and back to my favorite coach in the NFL, Brandon Staley. Uh, his decision-making continues to be poor. Uh, Julius touched on it already. I'm not going to spend too much of my breath on it anymore. I, I know I talk about it every week. I know you guys are probably tired of me talking about him. Um, I just don't understand how he almost cost his team this game. Um, there was one instance, I think there was a minute 51 left in the fourth. They had three timeouts. They end up, I understand why, after it was fourth down, they let it run down to two seconds to try and throw to Hail Mary. But the play calling up into that point made no sense. It just, it just didn't make sense. And, and I just, again, I just don't, his decision making is so poor sometimes, it's just infuriating. But, um, yeah, Chargers are 4-2. and two. They're in tied for first. Well, they're actually, they don't have the tiebreaker because the Chiefs beat them head-to-head. But they're tied with the Chiefs at first in that division. Um, you know, and they're just kind of sticking around. They haven't been winning very convincingly. They lost a really bad game to... They lost that Chiefs game on Thursday night, and, and they lost to the Jaguars, but they're 4-2, and two and they're, they're, they're hanging around. That's all you can do in this season right now because it's a... It's a crazy season right now, so they're just they're just hanging around. All right, so moving away from our analysis of week six, um, y'all, some of y'all reached out, and we got some DMs, and, and we're going to answer some questions right here on the podcast that y'all asked. Um, so the first question we had, um, and you know, I don't mind negative or positive questions. You know, it, you know, this is this podcast is meant to be different. That's what Julius and I set out to do. And and we will answer any questions y'all have, good or bad. And I'm the first to tell you that I'm not embarrassed of any of my predictions. They're predictions. I can't tell the future. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't predict injuries. I can't predict what's going to happen. But yeah, the first question we got for this week is, you know, how do we feel, Julius, that we were so wrong on Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos? Um, I'll start off since I already have the hot mic and I'm, and I'm kind of talking about it. Um, yeah, the Broncos look awful. I'll be the first one to admit that this team is not anything that I thought they'd look like. The defense is playing up to my standards and, and Julius and I touched on this in the preseason. We felt they were quarterback play away. Yeah, we thought they were quarterback play away and they have the lowest amount of points per game since 2007. So that means Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater were getting them more points per game last year. Um, with essentially the same weapons that Russell Wilson has. Um, you know, I definitely expected Russell Wilson to play a lot better than he is playing. I'm not in panic mode yet since it's only week six. But I will say through six weeks, there has been no sign of this thing turning around. Um I know in in my predictions and like bold predictions, I was saying that they could win the division because of how good that defense is. And listen, the defense through six weeks has been outstanding. The defense for this team has been outstanding. 
the the issue has been the offense. The offense needs to support this team, and they and they haven't been doing that. Um, so, you know, um, I guess how I feel is more disappointment for the Broncos because I thought, and just like most people thought, they were again a quarterback away from being a decent team. Um, but it looks like the head coach has also been terrible. So I can't place all the blame on Russell Wilson, but he is the one that has to go out and make the throws and make the correct plays, and he hasn't been doing that either. So uh, definitely has been disappointing. We'll see what you know the back end of this season entails for them. They have the Jets and the Jaguars up next, and uh, the Jets are a resurgent team, and the Jaguars you know, are, aren't going to be an easy easy out either. If, if they are 2-6 and six going into their bye week, we can officially, in my mind, wrap this season up for the Broncos. But if they're four and four going into their bye week, you know they have a shot. So we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, the entire NFL is wide open right now, uh, especially the AFC. So um, you know, never say never through through week six for me personally. So what I'll say to this question is this: Is Russell Wilson's play disappointing this year? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'll get straight to the point there and say that I certainly had higher expectations for this team, for this offense in particular. Patrick has touched on it a couple times. The defense has held up their end of the bargain. Uh, The offense is not. I've talked uh, many times before about how when I watch Russell Wilson, when he starts to avoid running around, it doesn't necessarily mean having to run for yards, just moving around behind the line of scrimmage and extending plays. He, he will, he'll do that from time to time this year, and then other times he won't do it, and I'm not sure what that's about. Um, so I'm not here to you know, try to defend Russell Wilson's play this year, but what I will do is this, and here's what I don't like. What I don't like is this whole you try to drive one narrative to, to try to retroactively change history. There are people who've been wanting Russell Wilson to fail for a long time now. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if they thought they had a chance at Sierra. I don't know what the problem is. But there are a lot of people out here who just don't like Russell Wilson on a personal level. Okay, in the previous four seasons, so I'm not going back far. In the previous four seasons, the last four seasons leading up to this year, Russell Wilson has thrown 131 touchdowns and 31 interceptions. That's a plus 100 ratio in four seasons. Your favorite quarterback probably hasn't done that. So this notion that Russell Wilson has been looking like this for years and somehow he's just getting exposed in Denver, that's not what happened. That's what I don't like. Is Russell Wilson bad this year? Yes. Does that somehow mean he was bad from 2017 to 2021? No. Like, like let, let's stop trying to change history because we try to force some narrative that doesn't exist. It was well within reason to say that Russell Wilson, before he hurt his finger last year, Russell Wilson was having another great season. We've seen Russell Wilson have parts of seasons where he's looked like an MVP candidate. He's never had a whole season where I would say, yeah, yeah, he was an MVP candidate. We have parts of seasons, and I'm not talking about two or three games like Cooper Rush. I'm talking about majority of seasons up until the last four or five weeks of the season, or maybe uh, there's a four or five-week stretch in the middle of the season where he doesn't play it, and that costs him the MVP. But we got to stop this whole trying to fit certain things. It would be like me saying just because Ezekiel Elliott is not having a great season, that that means he was never a great running back. Like you can't use now to erase stuff that happened for the last three, four years. You just, you just can't do that. So 
that I'm having a big problem with. So, you know, yes, how do I feel about being wrong about Russell Wilson? I'm disappointed, but it's not like I can sit here and say that history changes because he's having a down season. Uh, history changes just because all the games are on primetime and y'all are getting bored in primetime or whatever the case is. Um, you got to take feelings out of it. That, that's what I would say. And the question is, how do I feel? It's not about feelings. <laughs> how, how do I feel? Am I disappointed? But uh, I'm also not the one that gave him a $245 million contract. And if you listen to what I say about quarterbacks, you would know that I wouldn't extend anybody at the quarterback position for that price because I sit here a week in a week out and tell you that the quarterback position is not the most important. That said, yeah, I expected Russell Wilson to be a significant upgrade over Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke, and he has not been a significant upgrade over those guys. So, yeah, that, that's disappointing. I'm not shying away from that. But I will say that, again, you can't erase what Russell Wilson's done in the past just because he's been bad this year just because you don't like him. And I will also say that a big reason that I was high on the Denver Broncos, and if you heard me talk about it, you know, is Javante Williams. Losing Javante Williams has taken the identity of this offense away. I was not high on Melvin Gordon or any other running back on this roster. I was high on Javante Williams. Early in the season, I was saying how he needs to get a bigger share of the load in the backfield. And, you know, for him to be out, that is a huge, huge loss. I was not saying that this team is a team that's built to air it out 50 times. This was a team that should ground and pound and then let Wilson do what he does best, hit the play action, make big plays downfield, make plays with his feet. None of that is happening. Nathaniel Hackett is part of the problem. But again, I will say this about Russell Wilson. If you're the $245 million quarterback, if if I, if Tom Brady doesn't like a play call, he'll just change it. He's like, no, we're not running that. If Aaron Rodgers doesn't like what, what came in from the play call, he's changing it. You, Russell Wilson, you're not on those quarterbacks level, but financially, you're right there. So you should have enough clout over a rookie coach who has no clue what he's doing. Let's not forget the Denver Broncos had to hire a professional decision maker because Nathaniel Hackett is so bad at his job. That said, if you are a $245 million quarterback who has been in the league over a decade, you need to be able to say, you know what? I'm not, I won't let you let the clock run out so you, we can try a 64-yard field goal. I'm not going to let you. I'll call the timeout. I'm not going to call a stupid play, an H-back sweep on fourth, fourth and three and come up short because we want to hand the ball off to the slowest person on the team and have to run parallel to the line of scrimmage. We're not running that play. That's what I'm more disappointed in. More so than the player of Russell Wilson, I'm disappointed that he's not taking control of this team and saying, you know what, we've got an idiot coach. I'll, I'll, I'll make up for that. Russell Wilson, that, that, that's what I want him to see. More than anything else, I want him to be assertive and say, I'll make up for the fact that we don't have anything resembling a coach here. Um, yeah, Julius, you know, I, I don't know if people want us to be like, oh, we were dumb and don't know what we're talking about. I, if you ask anyone who watches sports and with a brain, almost anyone would have said Russell Wilson's an upgrade over Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater, and so far he's not. So that's the disappointing part for the Broncos, I think, for that organization. Uh, moving on to the next question that came in this week. Um, you know, and if I get this wrong, just just retweet us or, or come back into the DMs, but um, it said... Technically, all of our playoff predictions are still alive, but out of the picks we made, who are we feeling the most shaky or uneasy about? I'll let Julius start off uh, this this question for us. 
All right. Well, the team that I'm most concerned about would be the team that has the worst record so far, and that's the New Orleans Saints. Uh, now, like we said, I'm not in the business of trying to predict injuries. And yeah, you can say, well, Michael Thomas has been hurt for you for the last couple of years. You sh should have seen that coming. Okay, that that's fair enough. But I figured between Michael Thomas, Jarvis Landry, and Chris Olave, some combination of that three, or at least one of them, would make it to week six. So with that going on, with Jameis Winston not taking the step forward that I was projecting him to take, with Alvin Kamara not looking like the same playmaker that I'm used to seeing over previous seasons, this Saints offense isn't close to what I thought it was going to be. Uh, not in terms of personnel, and even when the personnel has been there, outside of Michael Thomas, when Michael Thomas has been on the field, he's done what I expect Michael Thomas to do. Unfortunately, he just can't stay on the field and I guess it's time for me to accept that. Uh, Chris Olave has done what I thought he would do. But like I said, Winston hasn't taken that step forward. And like I said, in this past game against Cincinnati, they really, really missed Marshawn Lattimore. That's one of those games that they had Marshawn Lattimore. I would have picked the Saints to win that game. They didn't have Lattimore. I picked Cincinnati to win that game. Injuries are really going to dictate a lot of things. And I think when you look at some of the teams that I would feel uneasy about injuries have hurt the Saints offensively. Injuries have hurt the 49ers defensively. Injuries have hurt the Rams offensive line, which was already suspect at full strength. So these injuries are what has me feeling uneasy more so than anything else. Uh, the one team that I can't point at and say injuries are the primary culprit is Cincinnati. That's that's the one team I look at and say, you guys don't look the way I thought you would. And it's it's their offense in particular. I thought Cincinnati would have a top seven, eight offense in the league. And it's just been an incoherent offense way too often. Patrick has touched many times on Joe Mixon and the inefficiency uh, he's had as a runner. Uh, the offense is hit or miss in the passing game. Uh, like I said, and up until this last game where uh, Jamar Chase is going up against backup corners who they normally would not have matched up on him. Uh, the big play had been missing from that offense. Uh, it seemed like every week last year, Jamar Chase was taking a 10-yard pass and going 50 yards, and you just haven't seen that this year. So Cincinnati has me a little concerned. Uh, if you asked me this question three weeks ago, I would have said the Colts because uh, they just looked so bad to start the season. But this is what happens when you ask these questions so early. This is going to be an interesting question to revisit in about another month because the Colts about a month ago looked like complete garbage. They look like the worst team in the league. Now I'm all, I'm thinking I, I had to win in the division. I'm like, these guys could finish in last in the division. Now a couple of weeks later, Jacksonville has regressed. The Texans, while playing tough, have been the Texans. And the Titans, while three and two, don't look all that imposing. So all of a sudden now, a few weeks later, I feel a lot better about the Colts. I'm back to thinking the Colts are going to win this division and with the chance to win this division by two or three games. So uh, this is a question that's going to be fluid, as Stephen A. likes to say. But uh, yeah, as of October 17th, October 18th, I'm saying the Saints are the team I'm, I'm the most concerned about as far as my playoff predictions go. Yeah, I was surprised by this question uh, just because it's week six out of an 18-week season. Um 
but you know, I guess it's kind of like a third of the way through the season. So, you know, just trying to see how we feel. Um, I am not uneasy on any of my teams right now or shaky just because it's week six and the NFL is so jumbled up this year. Uh, and what I mean by that is, yeah, the Giants are five and one, but do I think they're going to continue at the pace that they're winning these games at? I personally don't, um, even though they were my worst to first, if y'all remember, and that is still doable. Um, but if I have to pick one team, um, I had the Saints being the seventh team in in the NFC, which again, even though they're two and four, is still possible um, because the Buccaneers are three and three, the Falcons are three and three in their division, so they're only one game out of their division. And after the Cowboys at four and two, everybody else in front of them is three and three, and then there's a bunch of two and four teams, and then. You have the Bears, or you have the Lions and and Panthers at one and four and one and five, respectively. So, uh, even though it's looking bad for the Saints, they're not out of the playoff picture right now. Um, And then in the AFC, for me, I had the Broncos making the playoffs. I know Julius didn't, so that's why he didn't say them. But I had the Broncos making the playoffs, and that probably has me the most uneasy slash shaky through six weeks. not only because the Chiefs and Chargers are both four and two, um, the Broncos are zero and three in the division, so they've already lost three games in their own division. So they're not going to hold any tiebreakers, at least in the division. Um, so that that is kind of uh, I'm sorry, zero and two. I'm zero and two in the division, not zero and three. Zero and two in the division. Uh, but again, they, they've lost both their division games. Uh, so they're not going. It's going to be hard for them to hold any tiebreakers over that, and they just haven't looked good. Like the defense has looked as good as I thought they would, um, even with some of the injuries to them. The defense side of the ball, uh, they haven't even given up in six games a hundred points yet. They haven't given up a hundred total points through six games. Just to put that in perspective for people who aren't that good at math. That's less than 20 points per game. Because 20 points per game with five games is 100 points. So the defense is doing their end. They, The Texans almost have as many points scored as the Denver Broncos. That's what's concerning to me. So yeah, I, the team that I'm most uneasy or shaky about is the Broncos. Um, I, But again, the AFC after... The Bills and Chiefs and Chargers. You got the Jets at four and two, the Titans at three and two, Colts three two and one. Almost the entire AFC North at three and three. <laughs> you know, like you know what I mean? Like, and then everybody else is two and four. So again, is it is it to say like I'm in panic mode and they're not gonna make the playoffs? No, but just the way that that team has looked on offense, that's probably who I'm the most uneasy slash shaky about. So yeah, you did bring up the the Broncos, Patrick, and and yeah, I, I had them in the playoffs. I had three teams coming out of the AFC West. I felt like the AFC. Uh, let me let me just say this: I felt like the AFC West was going to be far and away. I said that before the season started. I felt like the AFC West would be far and away the best division, and it's proven to be anything but so far. Uh, I did have the Raiders finishing last in the division, and that unfortunately looks like an accurate prediction. But I did have three teams coming out of the AFC West to make the playoffs. The Broncos being one of them, and uh, based on what I've seen from them, it is concerning because 
it's not like 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 even with the Saints, they might start getting guys back. There is nobody coming back for Denver. Like Devontae Williams is done. And that that's the kind of injury that could affect him into next season. But he's certainly done for this year. And again, so much of my prediction was based on Williams being the tone setter. I've talked many times about how he led the nation in broken tackles his last year in college and was second in the NFL in broken tackles last season, despite the fact that he was playing in a part-time role. So he's the guy that I was looking at. The only guy that broke more tackles in the NFL last year than Javante Williams was Jonathan Taylor. That, that, that should let you know the type of machine he is with as far as his physical, physical running style goes. Without him, as I said during the recap, uh, tonight's recap of, of this game, without Javante Williams, there's no tone setter on the Broncos offense. So uh, thanks for bringing up the Broncos because I do need to express massive concern because I don't know how they're going to catch uh, Kansas City or how they're going to catch the Chargers after giving the Chargers this game literally. And the final question for this week uh, that we had uh, someone write into us about was they just wanted to know what our biggest surprise this season was. They said, what has surprised you the most through six weeks? Uh, it was really five weeks because week six hadn't played out yet when I got the question. But since week six is over, we will just say through six weeks. Um, so for me, the biggest surprise as a Giants fan is the Giants being five and one. Um, the Vikings being five and one doesn't shock me as much. I thought I had them in the playoffs. Uh, so I thought they would be a decent team. Um, I guess, you know, the Packers being three and three and just not looking that good kind of surprises me. But again, I, we talked about losing Devonte Adams and having all these young receivers there and how that team would look different. So it's really not that surprising. Um, you know, not from a team perspective. The Jets, obviously, four and two is also surprising. But for me, the Giants being five and one and beating the Packers and beating the Ravens, um, that it was surprising. Uh, definitely being five and one. But from a NFL standpoint and not just an individual team standpoint, um, I think the biggest surprise to me is how many injuries have happened this year. Um, I don't know why I feel like there's more injuries this year to to star players and big time players, but I just feel like there there's just a lot of injuries this year that that, you know, are definitely dictating a lot of seasons for teams and how the seasons are gonna go. So um again, the biggest surprise from a team standpoint for me is the New York Giants at five and one. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Um and then just from an NFL standpoint as a whole, uh just the amount of injuries that have been happening to to key players uh, for 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 teams uh so for me and you know you, you gotta acknowledge the giants uh i can't find anybody i certainly can't find anybody who, who can produce receipts and say you know yeah yeah after six games i think the giants are gonna be five and one i'd, I'd like to, to see who that person was back in august and september so uh that's legit for me uh for me a couple of surprises i'll talk about one uh the seattle seahawks and particularly Geno Smith, uh, certainly did not. I'm, I'm not a big believer in passer rating as a great statistic, especially now because the numbers are just so inflated. Uh, even an average quarterback in today's NFL is putting up an 85 or so passer rating, so it's, it's gotten out of hand. But to think that after five weeks that Geno Smith would lead the NFL in passer rating, and again, it's, it's fun because, 
like I said, there's people that just don't like Russell Wilson. So it's fun to sit there and say, look at Geno Smith out doing Russell Wilson. As I said a week ago, Geno Smith, you know, yesterday wasn't his best game, but overall he is outplaying anybody not named Mahomes or Allen. And that's something that I just, I never would have thought I would see somebody have this kind of resurgence. And again, we'll see how long we can keep, can keep it up, you know, because I keep talking about, you know, you don't want to get too hyped off of five and six game samples. But to see him have this kind of resurgence this far into his career, I mean, this is not somebody who's figuring out after two or three years. This is somebody who's been in the league for, I believe this is his 10th year in the league. And for him to come off to this kind of start he's had on a team that was clearly signaling that they were going into a rebuild, uh, that that's something that's surprising for me. Uh, the other surprise for me would be the Atlanta Falcons. And the fact that this is another team that, you know, I just wasn't sure about. This is another team that I looked at and said, you know what? Maybe don't draft a quarterback this year, but you'll have a high enough pick next year to get your pick of the litter. You'll finish in the top five uh, as far as draft picks go. The Falcons have been competitive week in and week out. And like you said, they, they are a terrible blown game away from having a winning record six games into the season. And yeah, that, that is, that is shocking for me because they should have won that saints game. They 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 should be sitting at four and two right now, and if they, had they held on to a huge lead, then you're talking about sole possession of first place. Uh, as it stands, you're still talking about being tied for first place, and that in a division where I was high on the Buccaneers, even knowing that they had the offensive line questions, I was high on the Saints. Uh, again, uh, projecting that Jameis Winston would be a perfect fit in this offense and projecting that these receivers would stay relatively healthy. The Falcons are a team that I did not give any shot to compete in this division. And through six games, they are right in the thick of things. So uh, to see them compete and to see this defense take the step forward that it has, I'm just so used to the Falcons for years and years, just being the team that, you know, is going to give up 24, 27, 30 points every week. Uh, for this team to, to fight, for this team to be able to out-physical a team like San Francisco. I know the 49ers were shorthanded defensively in a major way, but still for this team to be this physical, for this team to have this identity, and for them to do it without Cordero Patterson. I mean, I'm a huge Patterson fan, always have been. And so for this offense to be able to do just enough and for them to stick to their identity, uh, as a run-first team, it doesn't matter if they're going to use a fifth-round rookie and Tyler Algier. It doesn't matter if they're going to use an undrafted free agent and Caleb Huntley. It doesn't matter if they're going to use a converted defensive back in Avery Williams. They are going to run the ball at you and dare you to stop them. And Marcus Mariota, again, he's been up and down as a passer this year, but he's he's been competent enough as a passer. He's been a very willing runner and a very effective runner. We know he can do that. But I like the fact that he's been a more aggressive than he has been, certainly in his Tennessee days. And so, yeah, the Falcons are a team where I would look at and say they are a surprising team. I thought they would be a, a two and four, one and five type of team right now. And next thing you, you know, you look up, and like I said, they're right there, feeling good about where they stand in the division. So, uh, Seahawks and Falcons, just two fighting, gritty teams who are figuring out ways to stay relevant and taking advantage of underperforming divisions, those are the surprise teams for me to start. 
Yeah, thanks for sending the questions in. And as always, send them in. We'll answer them. Again, I'm not too proud to say I was wrong on this or not wrong on that. Um, again, it's only week six, so I'm not panicking on any of the things that I've said or predictions. And, you know, predictions are made based off of the team on paper and fully healthy. So, um, you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah, moving on to what's going on in the sports world. Um, Major League Baseball playoffs is happening. That's what's going on. Uh, NBA basketball starts tomorrow. So uh, some exciting things happening in the sports world. Um, I guess the baseball playoffs, uh, I want to talk about, I want to give a huge shout-out to Bryce Harper. Um, he's having an insane run through the playoffs so far. Um, I feel like he got healthy at the right time for this team. So before his injury this year, he was at it playing MVP level. He actually was the MVP front runner for the NL. Um, and then he got injured, was out for a while, came back, got into the groove of things, and he has been just raking this postseason. He he is the reason why that team is moving on to the championship series. Um, in a surprise, you know, win over, over the Braves, um, you know, the Phillies snuck in, they, they snuck into the playoffs and now they are going to the championship series. Um, the pitching is getting hot at the right time and the bats have been very hot. They have won these games and these playoffs by a lot. Um, disappointing out for the Braves after clawing their way back to win the NL East um, and then just to kind of go out and fizzle out the way they did. Um, none of their bats showed up besides Asunia Jr. Um, so that was just kind of sad to see. Um, and then Dodgers, super disappointing exit out of the playoffs. Um, it's kind of been their MO, though, besides their World Series run that they've kind of have great, great, great regular season. I and mean, when I say great regular seasons, I mean over 110 wins, over 106 wins every season just to get into the playoffs and have an early exit. Um, the fact that they lost to the Padres, I feel like adds an extra little burn this year, especially since they didn't lose a single series in the regular season against the, against the Padres. Now, the Padres are a different team as they went crazy at the deadline and made lots of trades and brought people in and one of the guys they brought in who was terrible in the regular season uh shut down the Dodgers in his closer role uh and the Brewers probably could have used him to maybe sneak into the playoffs mm -hmm. but um and then on the AL side of things I was hoping that we would have had a resolution to the Guardians Yankees but that got rained out so uh we'll have to wait but hoping the Guardians can pull it out because that'd be a great story and I just want to say Mariners, you blew it. You had the game one win <laughs> against Verlander, which would have put the Astros on their back heels, and you just blew that game. Uh, you guys fought hard, though. You're a fun team to watch. I called the sweep, though, Julius. I said in our last podcast, I think the Astros are going to sweep them, and they did, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but Jordan Alvarez, if Judge didn't have the year he had, people would have been talking about Jordan Alvarez this year. Um, just just a beast. Um, and it feels like Houston doesn't skip a beat, right? They lose Carlos Correa, they lose George Springer, and guess what? They're back in the AL Championship Series. Like I feel like that team just doesn't skip a beat. Um, the playoffs have been super fun to watch. Uh, hockey started back up. So there's just sports all around. Uh, college football has been crazy. There's tons of Vuts sets. Uh, Tennessee finally beat Alabama. 
there's just so much that happened this past week in sports, man. It was great, and I'll leave a little bit more of that to you. But it it was just a great week in sports. It's been a, it's been a ton of fun, and I love October because you have all the sports going. It's just so much action. Yeah, you said it, Patrick. I mean, this is the time of year where for the rest of the calendar year, it's just it's just such a great time. Like I said, you're in the midst of the baseball playoffs. Uh, hockey's just now getting underway. I'm doing fantasy hockey for the first time in 20 years. We'll see how that goes. Uh, basketball, like you said, is getting underway uh, with a couple of big uh, marquee games uh, tomorrow night. Uh, you have everything going on to the point where you, you even have a World Cup coming up in a couple of months. So I mean, you've got a little bit of everything from it seems like all sports going on right now. So it's just a great time. Uh, college football. How, how about Jalen Hyatt, the wide receiver for Tennessee, putting his name on the map? Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of NFL scouts that said, he's, he's, who, who scored five touchdowns against who? And, you know, I know a lot of people came away from that game talking about Hendon Hooker, the quarterback for Tennessee. But, yeah, Jalen Hyatt, he, he's, he's the guy that Peyton Manning sought to take a picture with after that game. So that is a name to keep in mind moving forward. I personally never thought I'd see the day where a wide receiver would drop five touchdowns on an Alabama defense. But uh, we saw that, and I was just glad that Tennessee pulled that win off. I was com- Concerned they were going to blow that game. They had a big lead and, and gave it up. And then, of course, they they gave Alabama their last touchdown, literally put the ball on the ground for Alabama to walk into the end zone. So I, I thought then it was over for Tennessee. But uh, credit to the Volunteers and, again, Jalen Hyatt uh, for putting that team over the top and getting a win there. Uh, Penn State, unfortunately, did what they tend to do in big games, and that's not show up. Uh, I've talked to some Penn State fans who uh, just have accepted the fact that they're just not going to be that team as long as James Franklin is there. Uh, they they are a team that's going to be solid every year. They produce good NFL talent, but when it comes to going against the cream of the crop teams, Penn State has a well-deserved history of uh, well-deserved reputation of falling way short in those games, and that was no exception. Michigan, <laughs> you want to talk about a team that sticks to their identity. Michigan's going to run, run, and run some more, and We'll see you know, who can stop that that old school style of offense. But yeah, Blake Horman and co- company, they're just going to keep running the ball. Uh, speaking of keep running the ball, Chase Brown, I want to give him a shout out. University of Illinois running back, 41 carries in a game for 180 yards. That is a work. You, you, you want to have any questions about whether or not he's a workhorse? How about 41 carries? How does that sound for you? Um, now, that this may come back to haunt him as far as his NFL draft prospects. He's going to have a lot, of miles on, <laughs> a lot of miles on the tires when he's done. But uh, for now, I just enjoy seeing a running back say, you know what, give me the ball, give me the ball, and give me the ball again. Uh, TCU picked up a signature win uh, coming from behind to beat Oklahoma State. And uh, this, this year has been a year where, you know, we know who the top, top teams are, but uh, for the second and third tier team, just seeing Kansas have a breakthrough year, and just even seeing now TCU having their first uh, start like this, where they go six and zero, they take out Oklahoma State. It's, it's good to see some of these programs that have either been down for a while, or in the case of Kansas, it seemed like down forever, uh, kind of step into the spotlight. Uh, Utah was able to steal a win from USC. Uh, they had a gutsy uh, Jim Harbaugh like, uh, excuse me, John Harbaugh like decision to go for two instead of take the tie. Uh, the only difference was, unlike the John Harbaugh decisions, this one actually worked, and Utah gets to steal the win and knock USC from the ranks of the unbeaten. And, of course, uh, my Wolfpack, uh, no Devin Leary. Of course, Leary, the ACC preseason player of the year, so that's a big loss. 
Uh, without him, uh, Jack Chambers is just not a quarterback who's going to throw the ball a lot. He had some nice runs in the game, but uh, couldn't maintain any offense, and Syracuse remains unbeaten. And that's another one of those teams that uh, has snuck into the rankings and is having uh, a, a resurgent season for the program. So sucks for us, but uh, good for Syracuse. Uh, like I said, the baseball playoffs have, have been interesting. I certainly did not have a Padres-Phillies NLCS matchup. Um, credit to the Phillies. They they beat two NL teams that I was very high on uh, in the Cardinals and the Braves to get to this point. Uh, I had Phillies losing both those series, so I guess I'll stop picking against them. Uh, the Padres I'm a little frustrated with because I actually picked the Padres to win the National League last year. So this is the kind of performance I thought they would give a year ago, and turns out I was a year too early. And, of course, it happens in a year where Fernando Tatis Jr., the main guy, the main reason I picked the Padres last year, Tatis misses the whole season. And you can say it was all due to recklessness, of whether it be the injury or the suspension. And without Tatis, the Padres find their way into the NLCS. So that's that's interesting there. I do like the Padres, but I'm going to stop picking against the Phillies. On the American League side, uh, you talked about the Astros and how they just they, they can lose pieces and just keep on going. Uh, you lose George Springer in the outfield, you're able to just throw Kyle Tucker in there and say, hey, go be great, <laughs> and it happens. Uh, you, you lose Carlos Correa, you replace him this year with a rookie in Jeremy Pena, and it's Pena who hits the game-winning home run to send the Astros to the NL, to the ALCS. So uh, the young bucks stepping up for the Astros, you talked about Jordan Alvarez. Uh, y'all got to keep in mind, Alvarez has been dealing with hand injuries for most of the second half of the season. His hands aren't healthy. You kind of need your hands to hit. And this guy is hitting rockets. I mean, even the ones that aren't home runs are putting dents in the outfield walls. It is amazing to watch him hit. And if, if he can get his hands back right, that's somebody to keep an eye out for next year because he, he's got easy 50-55 home run power. So, like you said, Aaron Judge, his the season he had caused a lot of things to be overlooked. But Jordan Alvarez, he, he had a 40 home run season, basically playing a part-time role for the second half of the season. So keep an eye on him. And, of course, like I said, Yankees Guardians is hoping that will come to an end tonight. The weather didn't allow for it. Uh, I am on record picking the Guardians to win this series. I still feel good about it now that the Yankees have had to use Garrett Cole twice in this series. Uh, the Yankees have to prove that they can beat the Guardians without Garrett Cole. And, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, you also had a little bit, bit of boxing this weekend, including a couple of highlight knockouts. Uh, Caleb Plant uh, with the, certainly the moment of the weekend boxing. Uh, I don't know. I missed all the trash talk that went into the fight between Caleb Plant and Anthony Durrell. But whatever was said got Caleb Plant at a different place. And my thing is, if you're Anthony Durrell, if you're going to talk that smack, you can't leave yourself that wide open for a left hook. And it's not even like Plant threw the left of the body and then immediately left of the hook. It was left of the body, wait, wait. And for some reason, Durrell dropped his guard and paid a dear price for it. And, of course, Plant, I guess, gave him a burying sign. I thought at first that he was, he was planting them. I thought he was like, like a gardening trying to joke on his own name. <laughs> I realized, oh, no, he's actually actually uh, symbolically burying Darrell. And, you know, you normally wouldn't get away with that level of disrespect in the ring, but when the other guy has no clue where he is, you, you can do that kind of stuff. Uh, Deontay Wilder got back on track. Um, he beat a guy that looked like he was Tyson Fury's stunt double. I guess that makes him feel a little bit better. It was 
not much of a punch from what it looked like, <laughs> but uh, it got the job done. And you know, whatever makes Wilder feel better, uh, it's it's nice to see him on the right side of a knockout for the first time in a while. Um, hopefully, this progresses to a Wilder versus Joshua fight. I don't think any of us, any of us want to see Wilder versus Fury again. I don't no. think Wilder wants to see that. No. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, you got to win against some Norwegian guy. I didn't even know Norwegian's boxed, but uh, got to win there. And, uh, you know, you got, got back on track there. Uh, Devin Haney also picked up another win over George Combosos Jr. this weekend. I uh, wasn't overly impressed with how Haney performed in that fight. I'm not a big believer in Haney, but he, he gets the job done. He doesn't get hit too much and has just enough power to be effective. I still think he doesn't want any part of Javante Davis. I still think he would lose to Javante Davis. I still think he would lose to Vasil Lomachenko. So I, I still don't believe in Haney being that top guy, but I, I think he's a, he's a pretty good fighter. So I'll, I'll give him credit there, but yeah, a busy, busy sports weekend and a busy sports, Sports season to come, so you know, it's only beginning here on this podcast. It's only beginning with the sports world here. So, if you're a true sports fan, this is a great time to be alive. And just to wrap up this uh, week's podcast, uh, last week I talked on the blow the whistle about my biggest fear of NFL teams going to all domed stadiums, and the news yep. broke yep. that the Tennessee Titans are looking at getting a domed stadium for Nashville, and the mayor quote said. So we can host a Super Bowl. So again, my biggest fear looks like it's coming to fruition because Nashville's a normally pretty good temperatured city. I mean, in February, no, but most you know cities and states aren't. But this is the this is just where we're moving towards because the Bills want a new stadium and they're going to get through theirs in Orchard Park and it's going to be a dome. And now Tennessee's going to a dome. It's everyone wants the big club like the Vegas stadium or Dallas's stadium. SoFi, you know, the Rams and the chargers. They just want a big club so they can host the super bowl. The bears, the bears are talking about moving out of soldier field and getting a dome stadium. Uh, they talked about that on the Thursday night broadcast where they bought an old racetrack from NASCAR and they're going to tear that down and put in a new dome stadium over there in Chicago. And that the mayor and city are trying to veto it. Cause it's not technically in the city. Um, you know, but that's what the Bears owners want to do. So that's three teams right there that have played outside and Soldier Field has a super long history. So that's three teams right there that have always played outside Chicago and Buffalo in the snow, the fans throwing snowballs and and mm-hmm. players doing snow angels. And and I'm not saying that I need to see those things, but football is just turning into everything has to be perfect weather field goal kickers get to kick perfect weather. You know, that's, that's, that's what makes the game exciting. And at, at, like, yep. I mean, I'm sure for Minnesota fans, it wasn't exciting. The, the negative 22 game, but guess what? The guy missed a 19 yard field goal because it was the football probably felt like ice. So I'm just saying like the elements do make a difference and it does impact the game. And I know people don't want it to, but that's kind of the beauty in football too. Like, and I know Julius as a Raider fan doesn't like, the snow game and the tuck rule and all that. But again, these are all things that came into play for many teams for many years. And I'm not one of those guys that's like, it's tradition. This is what needs to be. But I definitely don't want to see every team playing in a dome. I'll tell you that right now. I don't, I don't think I would enjoy that. I enjoy the fact that, um, you know, they have to play in the elements and, and, and the wind can affect a kick or, 
there's, there's just, I feel like there's more strategy that goes into it than just we're all going to play 75 degree weather on turf, tear up our players' knees. We don't care about player safety, and let's just all play 75 degree weather. You know, like, I don't know. I don't know, Julius. What do you think about? It? I just I'm just not a fan of everyone going turf and and, and domes. Of course, as a Raiders fan, I was on the wrong side of one of the more iconic snow games in history. Of course, the Tuck Rule game. But even with that said, it it hurts my heart. And I, I am an old school traditionalist. I got an old soul, whatever you want to call it. I want to see football played in the elements late in the season. And, you know, it, it, it's frustrating for me because I, I just feel like I feel like that's how football is meant to be played. Football is meant to be played outside. It's meant to be played on grass. It's meant to be played in the elements. It doesn't, doesn't have to be 72 and no wind and all this other stuff, no rain and all this stuff. No, no. Play football in the elements. That's how we grew up doing it. And it was fun. Like playing football in the snow used to be fun. Playing football in the snow, it produces so many iconic moments. It, it makes you have to adjust game plans. It gives a true home field advantage to teams who – are built to uh, perform better in those conditions as far as being more physical teams, more run-heavy teams, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Again, it just – I'm a big fan. And when you look at college football, you you get all that. And it, it, it's great to see a snow game up at the big house in Ann Arbor or something like that. Uh, the horse you had Ohio State. You, you want to see these weather games, and nobody has a problem with it in college. And I'm like, okay, if – if college players can adjust to these weather conditions, why can't we expect professional players to do it? And when I think about somewhere like Nashville, like it's one thing to uh, want to be in a dome if you're in Buffalo or something and you know the temperatures can get down to, you know, negative 15 degrees or something. If you're in Nashville, really? Really? Like at some point, uh, part of this is just laziness as far as I'm concerned. Part of it is nobody wants to take care of a grass field anymore. They just want to be able to take a field that's that's turf and be able to roll it in and out of the stadium and not have to do anything with it. And I was like, you know, Nashville, okay, it can get a little cool in Nashville in the winter, sure. But are you are you that bothered by forty degree weather in December and January? Like, is, is that is it that much of a problem? I, I just I'm not a fan of it at all. Uh, I've kind of accepted it as being inevitable. Everybody, at the very least, is going to have a retractable roof. But it just, you know, I, I, I miss it. I, and I, I will admit, I, I grew up, you know, where you had football and baseball stadiums shared and you'd have teams playing in, in infields <laughs> for, for at least the early part of the football season. I, I'm the type of person, I, I like to see, you know, dirt and grass stains on uniforms after the game. I don't like to see cuts and scrapes because everybody's getting tackled on turf and, and getting their elbows and stuff ripped up every week it just it, it's just much better just to see football played in the elements on natural grass um, most players would tell you that their their knees are thankful when they play on grass and so you'd like to, to see more protection for these commodities that you're literally investing millions of dollars in and yes these players are ultimately looked at as commodities you see how they get thrown back in after these concussions and you know what i'm saying there um yeah, yeah, it's just disappointing. I, I, I'm a traditionalist. I want to see uh, real football played in real conditions. But uh, obviously, like you said, it's about money. It's about getting Super Bowls. And that takes precedence over uh, 
pure competition. And that's just the sad truth that you have to accept sometimes. As always, thank you for listening to the Two Guys Four Balls podcast. Uh, if you want to reach out to us with any questions, concerns, you know, anything that you want us to answer while we're on the podcast, please reach out to our handle, Two Guys Four Balls Podcast. We're on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Um, and yeah, like I said, we're, we're down to answer any questions, good or bad, or, or anything like that. Um, I don't mind admitting when I'm wrong or when I'm, you know, I'll, I'll boast when I'm right, so I don't mind admitting when I'm wrong. Um, I can I can take it both ways. So, uh, Joyce, and I, Joyce and I appreciate you guys listening, and, and we'll be here all season and, you know, hopefully pass that. So, as always, thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Two Guys, Four Balls podcast.